This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 31 The Middle Passage. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look upon iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he? Habakkuk 1, 13. On the lower part of a small mean boat, on the Red River, Tom sat, chains on his wrists, chains on his feet, and a weight heavier than chains lay on his heart. All had faded from his sky, moon and star, all had passed by him, as the trees and banks were now passing, to return no more. Kentucky home, with wife and children and indulgent owners, St. Clair home, with all its refinements and splendors, the golden head of Eva, with its saint-like eyes, the proud, gay, handsome, seemingly careless, yet ever-kind St. Clair, hours of ease and indulgent leisure, all gone, and in place thereof, what remains? It is one of the bitterest apportionments of a lot of slavery that the negro, sympathetic and assimilative, after acquiring in a refined family the tastes and feelings which form the atmosphere of such a place, is not the less liable to become the bond-slave of the coarsest and most brutal, just as a chair or table, which once decorated the superb saloon, comes at last, battered and defaced, to the bar-room of some filthy tavern or some low haunt of vulgar debauchery. The great difference is that the table and chair cannot feel, and the man can, for even a legal enactment that he shall be taken, reputed, adjudged in law to be a chattel personal, cannot blot out his soul, with its own private little world of memories, hopes, loves, fears, and desires. Mr. Simon Legree, Tom's master, had purchased slaves at one place and another, in New Orleans, to the number of eight, and driven them, handcuffed, in couples of two and two, down to the good steamer Pirate, which lay at the levee, ready for a trip up the Red River. Having got them fairly on board, and the boat being off, he came round, with that air of efficiency which ever characterized him, to take a review of them stopping opposite to Tom, who had been attired for sale in his best broadcloth suit, with well-starched linen and shining boots, he briefly expressed himself as follows. "'Stand up!' Tom stood up. "'Take off that stock!' And, as Tom, encumbered by his fetters, proceeded to do it, he assisted him by pulling it, with no gentle hand, from his neck, and putting it in his pocket. Legree now turned to Tom's trunk, which, previous to this, he had been ransacking, and taking from it a pair of old pantaloons and dilapidated coat, which Tom had been wont to put on about his stable-work, he said, liberating Tom's hands from the handcuffs, and pointing to a recess in among the boxes. "'You go there, and put these on.' Tom obeyed, and in a few moments returned. "'Take off your boots,' said Mr. Legree. Tom did so. "'There,' said the former, throwing him a pair of coarse, stout shoes, such as were common among the slaves, "'put these on.' In Tom's hurried exchange he had not forgotten to transfer his cherished Bible to his pocket. It was well he did so, for Mr. Legree, having refitted Tom's handcuffs, proceeded deliberately to investigate the contents of his pockets. He drew out a silk handkerchief, and put it into his own pocket. Several little trifles, which Tom had treasured, chiefly because they had amused Eva, 
he looked upon with a contemptuous grunt and tossed them over his shoulder into the river. Tom's Methodist hymn-book, which in his hurry he had forgotten, he now held up and turned over. Humph! Pious, to be sure. So what's your name? You belong to the church, eh? Yes, massa, said Tom firmly. Well, I'll soon have that out of you. I have none of your bawling, praying, singing niggers on my place, so remember. Now mind yourself, he said, with a stamp and a fierce glance of his gray eye directed at Tom. I'm your church now, you understand? You've got to be as I say. Something within the silent black man answered no, and, as if repeated by an invisible voice, came the words of an old prophetic scroll, as Eva had often read them to him. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by name. Thou art mine. But Simon Legree heard no voice. That voice is one he never shall hear. He only glared for a moment on the downcast face of Tom, and walked off. He took Tom's trunk, which contained a very neat and abundant wardrobe, to the forecastle, where it was soon surrounded by various hands of the boat. With much laughing, at the expense of niggers who tried to be gentlemen, the articles very readily were sold to one and another, and the empty trunk finally put up at auction. It was a good joke, they all thought, especially to see how Tom looked after his things, as they were going this way and that, and then the auction of the trunk. That was funnier than all, and occasioned abundant witticisms. This little affair being over, Simon sauntered up again to his property. "'Now, Tom, I've relieved you of any extra baggage, you see. Take mighty good care of them clothes. It'll be long enough for you get more. I go in for making niggers careful. One suit has to do for one year on my place." Simon next walked up to the place where Emmeline was sitting, chained to another woman. "'Well, my dear,' he said, chucking her under the chin, "'keep up your spirits.' The involuntary look of horror, fright, and aversion with which the girl regarded him did not escape his eye. He frowned fiercely. "'None of your shines, gal. You's got to keep a pleasant face when I speak to you. D'ye hear? And you, you old yellow poco moonshine," he said, giving a shove to the mulatto woman to whom Emmeline was chained, "'don't you carry that sort of face. You got to look chipper, I tell you. I say, all on you," he said, retreating a pace or two back. "'Look at me! Look at me! Look me right in the eye! Straight now!' said he, stamping his foot at every pause. As by a fascination, every eye was now directed to the glaring greenish-gray eye of Simon. "'Now,' said he, doubling his great heavy fist into something resembling a blacksmith's hammer, "'you see this fist? Heft it,' he said, bringing it down on Tom's hand. "'Look at these yer bones. Well, I tell you, this yer fist has got as hard as iron knocking down niggers. I never see the nigger yet. I couldn't bring down with one crack," said he, bringing his fist down so near to the face of Tom that he winked and drew back. I don't keep none of your cussed overseers. I does my own overseeing. And I tell you, things is seen to. Use every one of you got to toe the mark, I tell you. Quick! Straight! The moment I speak. That's the way to keep in with me. You won't find no soft spot in me nowhere. So now mind yourselves, for I don't show no mercy. The women involuntarily drew in their breath, and the whole gang sat with downcast, dejected faces. Meanwhile Simon turned on his heel and marched up to the bar of the boat for a dram. "'That's the way I begin with my niggers,' he said to a gentlemanly man who had stood by him during his speech. "'It's my system to begin strong. Just let them know what to expect.' 
"'Indeed,' said the stranger, looking upon him with the curiosity of a naturalist studying some out-of-the-way specimen. "'Yes, indeed. I'm none of your gentlemen planters, with lily fingers to slop round and be cheated by some old cuss of an overseer. Just feel of my knuckles, now. Look at my fist. I tell you, sir, the flesh-aunt has come just like a stone, practicing on nigger. Feel on it.' The stranger applied his fingers to the implement in question, and simply said, "'Tis hard enough, and I suppose,' he added, "'practice has made your heart just like it.' "'Why, yes, I may say so,' said Simon, with a hearty laugh. "'I reckon there's as little soft in me as in any one going. Tell you, nobody comes it over me. Niggers never gets round me, neither with squallin' nor soft soap. That's a fact.' "'You have a fine lot there.' "'Real,' said Simon. "'There's that Tom. They told me he was uncommon. I paid a little high for him, tendin' him for a driver and a managin' chap. Only get the notions out that he's larnt by being treated as niggers never ought to be. He'll do prime. The yellow woman I got took in on. I really think she's sickly, but I shall put her through for what she's worth. She may last a year or two. I don't go for saving niggers. Use up and buy more. It's my way. Makes you less trouble. And I'm quite sure it comes cheaper in the end." And Simon sipped his glass. "'And how long do they generally last?' said the stranger. "'Well, dunno, cordin' as their constitution is. Stout fellers last six or seven years. Trashy ones gets worked up in two or three. I used to, when I first begun, have considerable trouble fussin' with em and tryin' to make em hold out, doctorin' on em up when they sick, and givin' on em clothes and blankets and what not, tryin' to keep em all sort of decent and comfortable. La, twasn't no sort of use. I lost money on em, and twas heaps of trouble. Now, you see, I just put em straight through, sick or well. When one nigger's dead, I buy another, and I find it comes cheaper and easier every way." The stranger turned away and seated himself beside a gentleman who had been listening to the conversation with repressed uneasiness. "'You must not take that fellow to be any specimen of southern planters,' said he. "'I should hope not,' said the young gentleman, with emphasis. "'He is a mean, low, brutal fellow,' said the other. And yet your laws allow him to hold any number of human beings subject to his absolute will, without even a shadow of protection. And, low as he is, you cannot say that there are not many such." "'Well,' said the other, "'there are also many considerate and humane men among planters.' "'Granted,' said the young man, "'but in my opinion it is you, considerate, humane men, that are responsible for all the brutality and outrage wrought by these wretches, because if it were not for your sanction and influence, the whole system could not keep foothold for an hour. If there were no planters except such as that one, said he, pointing with his finger to Legree, who stood with his back to them, the whole thing would go down like a millstone. It is your respectability and humanity that licenses and protects his brutality." "'You certainly have a high opinion of my good nature,' said the planter, smiling. "'But I advise you not to talk quite so loud, as there are people on board the boat who might not be quite so tolerant to opinion as I am. You had better wait till I get up to my plantation, and there you may abuse us all, quite at your leisure." The young gentleman colored and smiled, and the two were soon busy in a game of backgammon. Meanwhile another conversation was going on in the lower part of the boat, between Emmeline and the mulatto woman with whom she was confined. As was natural, they were exchanging with each other some particulars of their history. "'Who did you belong to?' said Emmeline. "'Well, my master was Mr. Ellis, lived on Levy Street. Perhaps you've seen the house?' "'Was he good to you?' said Emmeline. 
"'Mostly, till he took sick. He's lain sick off and on more'n six months, and been ornful uneasy. Pears like he warn't willin' to have nobody rest day or night, and got so curious there couldn't nobody suit him. Pears like he just grew crosser every day. Kept me up nights till I got fairly beat out, and couldn't keep awake no longer, and cause I got to sleep one night, lors, he talked so awful to me, and he tell me he'd sell me to just the hardest master he could find, and he'd promised me my freedom, too, when he died. "'Had you any friends?' said Emmeline. "'Yes, my husband. He's a blacksmith. Massa generally hired him out. They took me off so quick, I didn't even have time to see him. And I's got four children. Oh, dear me!' said the woman, covering her face with her hands. It is a natural impulse in every one, when they hear a tale of distress, to think of something to say by way of consolation. Emmeline wanted to say something, but she could not think of anything to say. What was there to be said? As by a common consent they both avoided, with fear and dread, all mention of the horrible man who was now their master. True, there is religious trust for even the darkest hour. The mulatto woman was a member of the Methodist Church, and had an unenlightened but very sincere spirit of piety. Emmeline had been educated much more intelligently, taught to read and write, and diligently instructed in the Bible, by the care of a faithful and pious mistress. Yet would it not try the faith of the firmest Christian to find themselves abandoned, apparently, of God, in the grasp of ruthless violence? How much more must it shake the faith of Christ's poor little ones, weak in knowledge and tender in years? The boat moved on, freighted with its weight of sorrow, up the red, muddy, turbid current, through the abrupt, tortuous windings of the Red River, and sad eyes gazed wearily on the steep red-clay banks, as they glided by in dreary sameness. At last the boat stopped at a small town, and Legree, with his party, disembarked. End of chapter 31This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 32 Dark Places The dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. Psalms 74 20 Trailing wearily behind a rude wagon and over a ruder road, Tom and his associates faced onward. In the wagon was seated Simon Legree, and the two women, still fettered together, were stowed away with some baggage in the back part of it, and the whole company were seeking Legree's plantation, which lay a good distance off. It was a wild, forsaken road, now winding through dreary pine-barrens where the wind whispered mournfully, and now over log-causeways through long cypress swamps, the doleful trees rising out of the slimy, spongy ground, hung with long wreaths of funereal black moss, while ever and anon the loathsome form of the moccasin-snake might be seen sliding among broken stumps and shattered branches that lay here and there rotting in the water. It is disconsolate enough, this riding to the stranger, who, with well-filled pocket and well-appointed horse, threads the lonely way on some errand of business, but wilder, drearier to the man enthralled, whom every weary step bears further from all that man loves and prays for. 
So one should have thought, that witnessed the sunken and dejected expression on those dark faces, the wistful, patient weariness with which those sad eyes rested on object after object that passed them in their sad journey. Simon rode on, however, apparently well pleased, occasionally pulling away at a flask of spirit, which he kept in his pocket. "'I say you,' he said, as he turned back and caught a glance of the dispirited faces behind him. "'Strike up a song, boys! Come!' The men looked at each other, and the come was repeated with a smart crack of the whip which the driver carried in his hands. Tom began a Methodist hymn. "'Jerusalem, my happy home, name ever dear to me, when shall my sorrows have an end, thy joys, when shall—' Note. Jerusalem, my happy home, anonymous hymn dating from the latter part of the sixteenth century, sung to the tune of St. Stephen, words derived from St. Augustine's meditations. "'Shut up, you black cuss!' roared Legree. "'Did you think I wanted any of your infernal old Methodism? I say, tune up now, and something real rowdy, quick!' One of the other men struck up one of those unmeaning songs common among the slaves. "'Massa seed me, caught your coon, high, boys, high. He laughed to split, to see the moon. Ho, 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 boys, ho! Ho, yo, hi, ye, ho!' The singer appeared to make up the song to his own pleasure, generally hitting on rhyme, without much attempt at reason, and the party took up the chorus at intervals. "'Ho, ho, ho, boys, ho! Hi, ye, ho! Hi, ye, ho!' It was sung very boisterously, and with a forced attempt at merriment but no wail of despair, no words of impassioned prayer, could have had such a depth of woe in them as the wild notes of the chorus, as if the poor, dumb heart, threatened, prisoned, took refuge in that inarticulate sanctuary of music, and found there a language in which to breathe its prayer to God. There was a prayer in it which Simon could not hear. He only heard the boys singing noisily, and was well pleased. He was making them keep up their spirits. "'Well, my little dear,' he said, turning to Emmeline, and laying his hands on her shoulder, "'we're almost home.' When Legree scolded and stormed, Emmeline was terrified. But when he laid his hand on her, and spoke as he now did, she felt as if she had rather he would strike her. The expression of his eye made her soul sick and her flesh creep. Involuntarily she clung closer to the mulatto woman by her side, as if she were her mother. "'You didn't ever wear earrings,' he said, taking hold of her small ear with his coarse fingers. "'No, Massa,' said Emmeline, trembling and looking down. "'Well, I'll give you a pair, when we get home, if you're a good girl. You needn't be so frightened. I don't mean to make you work very hard. You'll have fine times with me, and live like a lady, only be a good girl.' Legree had been drinking to that degree that he was inclined to be very gracious, and it was about this time that the enclosures of the plantation rose to view. The estate had formerly belonged to a gentleman of opulence and taste, who had bestowed some considerable attention to the adornment of his grounds. Having died insolvent, it had been purchased at a bargain by Legree, who used it, as he did everything else, merely as an implement for money-making. The place had that ragged, forlorn appearance, which is always produced by the evidence that the care of the former owner has been left to go to utter decay. What was once a smooth-shaven lawn before the house, dotted here and there with ornamental shrubs, was now covered with frowsy tangled grass, with horse-posts set up here and there in it, where the turf was stamped away, and the ground littered with broken pails, cobs of corn, and other slovenly remains. Here and there a mildewed jessamine or honeysuckle hung raggedly from some ornamental support, which had been pushed to one side by being used as a horse-post. 
What once was a large garden was now all grown over with weeds, through which here and there some solitary exotic reared its forsaken head. What had been a conservatory had now no window-shades, and on the mouldering shelves stood some dry, forsaken flower-pots with sticks in them, whose dried leaves showed they had once been plants. The wagon rolled up a weedy gravel-walk under a noble avenue of china-trees, whose graceful forms and ever-springing foliage seemed to be the only things there that neglect could not daunt or alter. Like noble spirits, so deeply rooted in goodness as to flourish and grow stronger amid discouragement and decay. The house had been large and handsome. It was built in a manner common at the South, a wide veranda of two stories running round every part of the house, into which every outer door opened, the lower tier being supported by brick pillars. But the place looked desolate and uncomfortable, some windows stopped up with boards, some with shattered panes, and shutters hanging by a single hinge, all telling of coarse neglect and discomfort. Bits of board, straw, old decayed barrels and boxes garnished the ground in all directions, and three or four ferocious-looking dogs, roused by the sound of the wagon-wheels, came tearing out, and were with difficulty restrained from laying hold of Tom and his companions, by the effort of the ragged servants who came after them. "'You see what you'd get?' said Legree, caressing the dogs with grim satisfaction, and turning to Tom and his companions. "'You see what you'd get, if you'd try to run off. These here dogs has been raised to track niggers, and they'd just as soon chaw one on you up as eat their dinner. So mind yourselves.' "'How now, Sambo?' he said to a ragged fellow, without any brim to his hat, who was officious in his attentions. "'How have things been going?' First rate massa.' "'Quimbo,' said Legree to another, who was making zealous demonstrations to attract his attention, "'you mind what I tell you?' "'Guess I did, didn't I?' These two colored men were the two principal hands on the plantation. Legree had trained them in savageness and brutality as systematically as he had his bulldogs and, by long practice in hardness and cruelty, brought their whole nature to about the same range of capacities. It is a common remark, and one that is thought to militate strongly against the character of the race, that the negro overseer is always more tyrannical and cruel than the white one. This is simply saying that the negro mind has been more crushed and debased than the white. It is no more true of this race than of every oppressed race the world over. The slave is always a tyrant if he can get a chance to be one. Legree, like some potentates we read of in history, governed his plantation by a sort of resolution of forces. Sambo and Quimbo cordially hated each other, the plantation hands, one and all, cordially hated them, and, by playing off one against another, he was pretty sure, through one or the other of the three parties, to get informed of whatever was on foot in the place. Nobody can live entirely without social intercourse, and Legree encouraged his two black satellites to a kind of coarse familiarity with him, a familiarity, however, at any moment liable to get one or the other of them into trouble, for, on the slightest provocation, one of them always stood ready, at a nod, to be a minister of his vengeance on the other. As they stood there now by Legree they seemed an apt illustration of the fact that brutal men are lower even than animals. Their coarse, dark, heavy features, their great eyes rolling enviously on each other, their barbarous, guttural, half-brute intonation, their dilapidated garments fluttering in the wind, were all in admirable keeping with the vile and unwholesome character of everything about the place. "'Here, you Sambo!' said Legree, 
"'Take these yar boys down to the quarters, and here's a gal I got for you,' said he, as he separated the mulatto woman from Emmeline, and pushed her towards him. "'I promised to bring you one, you know.' The woman gave a start, and drawing back, said suddenly, "'Oh, Massa, I left my old man in New Orleans.' "'What of that, you? Won't you want one here? None of your words. Go along,' said Legree, raising his whip. "'Come, mistress,' he said to Emmeline. "'You go in here with me.' A dark, wild face was seen, for a moment, to glance at the window of the house, and, as Legree opened the door, a female voice said something, in a quick, imperative tone. Tom, who was looking, with anxious interest, after Emmeline, as she went in, noticed this, and heard Legree answer angrily, "'You may hold your tongue. I'll do as I please, for all you.' Tom heard no more, for he was soon following Sambo to the quarters. The quarters was a little sort of street of rude shanties in a row in a part of the plantation far off from the house. They had a forlorn, brutal, forsaken air. Tom's heart sunk when he saw them. He had been comforting himself with the thought of a cottage, rude indeed, but one which he might make neat and quiet, and where he might have a shelf for his Bible, and a place to be alone out of his laboring hours. He looked into several. They were mere rude shells, destitute of any species of furniture, except a heap of straw, foul with dirt, spread confusedly over the floor, which was merely the bare ground, trodden hard by the tramping of innumerable feet. "'Which of these will be mine?' said he to Sambo, submissively. "'Dunno. Can turn in here, I suppose,' said Sambo. "'Specs there's room for another lar. There's a pretty smart heap of niggers to each on him now. Sure, I don't know what I's to do with more." It was late in the evening when the weary occupants of the shanties came flocking home, men and women in soiled and tattered garments, surly and uncomfortable, and in no mood to look pleasantly on newcomers. The small village was alive with no inviting sounds. Hoarse, guttural voices contending at the hand-mills, where their morsel of hard corn was yet to be ground into meal, to fit it for the cake that was to constitute their only supper. From the earliest dawn of the day they had been in the fields, pressed to work under the driving lash of the overseers, for it was now in the very heat and hurry of the season, and no means was left untried to press every one up to the top of their capabilities. True, says the negligent lounger, picking cotton isn't hard work, isn't it? and it isn't much inconvenience, either, to have one drop of water fall on your head, yet the worst torture of the Inquisition is produced by drop after drop, drop after drop, falling moment after moment, with monotonous succession on the same spot. And work, in itself not hard, becomes so by being pressed, hour after hour, with unvarying, unrelenting sameness, with not even the consciousness of free will to take from its tediousness. Tom looked in vain among the gang, as they poured along, for companionable faces. He saw only sullen, scowling, imbruted men, and feeble, discouraged women, or women that were not women, the strong pushing away the weak, the gross, unrestricted animal selfishness of human beings, of whom nothing good was expected and desired and who, treated in every way like brutes, had sunk as nearly to their level as it was possible for human beings to do. To a late hour in the night the sound of the grinding was protracted, for the mills were few in number compared with the grinders, and the weary and feeble ones were driven back by the strong, and came on last in their turn. "'Ho, yo!' said Sambo, coming to the mulatto woman, 
and throwing down a bag of corn before her. "'What a cuss your name!' "'Lucy,' said the woman. "'Well, Lucy, you're my woman now. You'll grind this air corn and get my supper baked, yeah?' "'I ain't your woman, and I won't be,' said the woman, with her sharp, sudden courage of despair. "'You go long!' "'I'll kick you, then,' said Sambo, raising his foot threateningly. "'You may kill me, if you choose. The sooner the better. Wished I was dead,' said she. "'I say, Sambo, you go to spine in the hands, I'll tell mass on you,' said Quimbo, who was busy at the mill, from which he had viciously driven two or three tired women who were waiting to grind their corn. "'And I'll tell him you won't let the women come to the mills, you old nigger,' said Sambo. "'You just keep to your own row.' Tom was hungry with his day's journey and almost faint for want of food. "'There, yo!' said Quimbo, throwing down a coarse bag which contained a peck of corn. "'There, nigger! Grab! Take current! You won't get no more this yar week!' Tom waited till a late hour to get a place at the mills, and then, moved by the utter weariness of two women, whom he saw trying to grind their corn there, he ground for them, put together the decaying brands of the fire, where many had baked cakes before them, and then went about getting his own supper. It was a new kind of work there, a deed of charity, small as it was, but it woke an answering touch in their hearts. An expression of womanly kindness came over their hard faces. They mixed his cake for him, and tended its baking. And Tom sat down by the light of the fire, and drew out his Bible, for he had need for comfort. "'What's that?' said one of the women. "'A Bible,' said Tom. "'Good Lord! Hadn't seen him since I was in Kentucky.' "'Was you raised in Kentuck?' said Tom, with interest. "'Yes, and well raised, too. Never spect to come to dis yar,' said the woman, sighing. "'What's dat our book, anyway?' said the other woman. "'Why, the Bible.' "'Laws me, what's dat?' said the woman. "'Do tell! You never hearn't on't said the other woman. "'I used to hear Mrs. a-readin' on't sometimes in Kentuck, but laws me, we don't hear nothin' here but crackin' and swarin'. "'Read a piece, anyways,' said the first woman, curiously, seeing Tom attentively poring over it. Tom read, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.' "'Them's good words enough,' said the woman. "'Who says em? "'The Lord,' said Tom. "'I just wish I knowed where to find him,' said the woman. "'I would go. Pears like I never should get rested again.' My flesh is fairly sore, and I tremble all over every day, and Sambo's allers a-jawin' at me, cause I doesn't pick faster, and nights it's most midnight fore I can get my supper, and then pears like I don't turn over and shut my eyes fore I hear de horn blow to get up, and at it again in the morning. If I knew where the Lord was, I'd tell him. He's here. He's everywhere, said Tom. Lord, you ain't gwine to make me believe dat. I, I know de Lord aren't here said the woman. "'Tain't no use talking, though. I's just gwine to camp down, and sleep while I can.' The women went off to their cabins, and Tom sat alone by the smouldering fire that flickered up redly in his face. The silver fair-browed moon rose in the purple sky, and looked down, calm and silent, as God looks on the scene of misery and oppression, looked calmly on the lone black man as he sat with his arms folded, and his Bible on his knee. "'Is God here?' And how is it possible for the untaught heart to keep its faith, unswerving in the face of dire misrule, and palpable unrebuked injustice? In that simple heart waged a fierce conflict, the crushing sense of wrong, the foreshadowing of a whole life of future misery, 
the wreck of all past hopes mournfully tossing in the soul's sight, like dead corpses of wife and child and friend, rising from the dark wave, and surging in the face of the half-drowned mariner. Ah, was it easy here to believe and hold fast the great password of Christian faith that God is, and is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him? Tom rose disconsolate and stumbled into the cabin that had been allotted to him. The floor was already strewn with weary sleepers, and the foul air of the place almost repelled him. But the heavy night-dews were chill, and his limbs weary, and, wrapping about him a tattered blanket which formed his only bedclothing, he stretched himself in the straw and fell asleep. In dreams a gentle voice came over his ear. He was sitting on the mossy seat in the garden by Lake Pontchartrain, and Eva, with her serious eyes bent downward, was reading to him from the Bible, and he heard her read, When thou passest through the waters I will be with thee, and the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour. Gradually the words seemed to melt and fade, as in a divine music. The child raised her deep eyes, and fixed them lovingly on him, and rays of warmth and comfort seemed to go from them to his heart. And, as if wafted on the music, she seemed to rise on shining wings, from which flakes and spangles of gold fell off like stars, and she was gone. Tom woke. Was it a dream? Let it pass for one. But who shall say that that sweet young spirit, which in life so yearned to comfort and console the distressed, was forbidden of God to assume this ministry after death? It is a beautiful belief that ever round our head are hovering on angel wings the spirits of the dead. End of chapter 32「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 33. Cassie. And behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Ecclesiastes 4. 1. It took but a short time to familiarize Tom with all that was to be hoped or feared in his new way of life. He was an expert and efficient workman in whatever he undertook, and was, both from habit and principle, prompt and faithful. Quiet and peaceable in his disposition, he hoped, by unremitting diligence, to avert from himself at least a portion of the evils of his condition. He saw enough of abuse and misery to make him sick and weary but he determined to toil on with religious patience, committing himself to him that judgeth righteously, not without hope that some way of escape might yet be open to him. Legree took a silent note of Tom's availability. He rated him as a first-class hand, and yet he felt a secret dislike to him, the native antipathy of bad to good. He saw, plainly, that when, as was often the case, his violence and brutality fell on the helpless, Tom took notice of it for so subtle is the atmosphere of opinion that it will make itself felt without words, and the opinion even of a slave may annoy a master. 
Tom, in various ways, manifested a tenderness of feeling, a commiseration for his fellow-sufferers, strange and new to them, which was watched with a jealous eye by Legree. He had purchased Tom with a view of eventually making him a sort of overseer, with whom he might at times entrust his affairs, in short absences. And, in his view, the first, second, and third requisite for that place was hardness. Legree made up his mind that, as Tom was not hard to his hand, he would harden him forthwith. And some few weeks after Tom had been on the place, he determined to commence the process. One morning, when the hands were mustered for the field, Tom noticed with surprise a newcomer among them, whose appearance excited his attention. It was a woman, tall and slenderly formed, with remarkably delicate hands and feet, and dressed in neat and respectable garments. By the appearance of her face she might have been between thirty-five and forty. And it was a face that, once seen, could never be forgotten. One of those that, at a glance, seemed to convey to us an idea of a wild, painful, and romantic history. Her forehead was high, and her eyebrows marked with beautiful clearness. Her straight, well-formed nose, her finely cut mouth, and the graceful contour of her head and neck showed that she must once have been beautiful. But her face was deeply wrinkled with lines of pain, and of proud and bitter endurance. Her complexion was sallow and unhealthy, her cheeks thin, her features sharp, and her whole form emaciated. But her eye was the most remarkable feature, so large, so heavily black, overshadowed by long lashes of equal darkness, and so wildly, mournfully despairing. There was a fierce pride and defiance in every line of her face, in every curve of the flexible lip, in every motion of her body. But in her eye was a deep, settled night of anguish, an expression so hopeless and unchanging as to contrast fearfully with the scorn and pride expressed by her whole demeanour. Where she came from, or who she was, Tom did not know. The first he did know, she was walking by his side, erect and proud, in the dim grey of the dawn. To the gang, however, she was known, for there was much looking and turning of heads, and a smothered yet apparent exultation among the miserable, ragged, half-starved creatures by whom she was surrounded. "'Got to come to it, at last! Grad of it!' said one. "'He, he, he!' said another. "'You'll know how good it is, Missy. We'll see her work. Wonder if she'll get a cutting up at night, like the rest of us.' "'I'd be glad to see her down for a flogging, I'll be bound,' said another. The woman took no notice of these taunts, but walked on, with the same expression of angry scorn, as if she heard nothing. Tom had always lived among refined and cultivated people, and he felt intuitively, from her air and bearing, that she belonged to that class. But how or why she could befall into those degrading circumstances he could not tell. The woman neither looked at him nor spoke to him, though all the way to the field she kept close at his side. Tom was soon busy at his work, but as the woman was at no great distance from him, he often glanced an eye to her at her work. He saw at a glance that a native adroitness and handiness made the task to her an easier one than it proved to many. She picked very fast and very clean, and with an air of scorn as if she despised both the work and the disgrace and humiliation of the circumstances in which she was placed. In the course of the day Tom was working near the mulatto woman who had been bought in the same lot with himself. She was evidently in a condition of great suffering and Tom often heard her praying as she wavered and trembled and seemed about to fall down. 
Tom silently, as he came near to her, transferred several handfuls of cotton from his own sack to hers. "'Oh, don't, don't!' said the woman, looking surprised. "'It'll get you into trouble!' Just then Sambo came up. He seemed to have a special spite against this woman, and, flourishing his whip, said in brutal guttural tones, "'What is yer loose, foolin' I?' And with the word, kicking the woman with his heavy cowhide shoe, he struck Tom across the face with his whip. Tom silently resumed his task. But the woman, before at the last point of exhaustion, fainted. "'I'll bring her to,' said the driver, with a brutal grin. "'I'll give her something better than camphor.' And taking a pin from his coat-sleeve, he buried it to the head in her flesh. The woman groaned, and half rose. "'Get up, you beast, and work, will you, or I'll show you a trick more!' The woman seemed stimulated for a few moments to an unnatural strength, and worked with desperate eagerness. "'See that you keep to that R, said the man, "'or you'll wish you dead to-night, I reckon.' "'That I do now,' Tom heard her say, and again he heard her say, "'Oh, Lord, how long! Oh, Lord, why don't you help us?' At the risk of all that he might suffer, Tom came forward again, and put all the cotton in his sack into the woman's. "'Oh, you mustn't! You don't know what they'll do to you,' said the woman. "'I can bar it,' said Tom. "'Better'n you.' and he was at his place again. It passed in a moment. Suddenly the stranger woman whom we have described, and who had in the course of her work come near enough to hear Tom's last words, raised her heavy black eyes, and fixed them for a second on him. Then, taking a quantity of cotton from her basket, she placed it in his. "'You know nothing about this place,' she said, "'or you wouldn't have done that. When you've been here a month, you'll be done helping anybody.' You'll find it hard enough to take care of your own skin." "'The Lord forbid, Missus," said Tom, using instinctively to his field companion the respectful form proper to the high-bred with whom he had lived. "'The Lord never visits these parts,' said the woman bitterly, as she went nimbly forward with her work, and again the scornful smile curled her lips. But the action of the woman had been seen by the driver across the field, and, flourishing his whip, he came up to her. What? "'What?' he said to the woman, with an air of triumph. "'You a foolin'? Go long. You're under me now. Mind yourself, or you'll clutch it.' A glance like sheet-lightning suddenly flashed from those black eyes, and, facing about, with quivering lip and dilated nostrils, she drew herself up, and fixed a glance, blazing with rage and scorn, on the driver. "'Dog!' she said. "'Touch me, if you dare. I've power enough yet to have you torn by the dogs, burnt alive, cut to inches. I've only to say the word.' "'What the devil you here for, then?' said the man, evidently cowed, and sullenly retreating a step or two. "'Didn't mean no harm, Miss Cassie.' "'Keep your distance, then,' said the woman. And in truth the man seemed greatly inclined to attend to something at the other end of the field, and started off in quick time. The woman suddenly turned to her work, and labored with a dispatch that was perfectly astonishing to Tom. She seemed to work by magic. Before the day was through, her basket was filled, crowded down, and piled, and she had several times put largely into Tom's. Long after dusk, the whole weary train, with their baskets on their heads, defiled up to the building appropriated to the storing and weighing the cotton. Legree was there, busily conversing with the two drivers. "'Dat our Tom's gwine to make a powerful deal of trouble. Kept a-puttin' into Lucy's basket. One of these yer dat will get all the der niggers to feelin' abused, if master don't watch him, said Sambo. "'Hey, day, the black cuss,' said Legree. "'He'll have to get a breakin' in, won't he, boys?' Both negroes grinned a horrid grin at this intimation. 
Aye, aye. Let Massa degree alone for breaking in. De devil hisself couldn't beat Massa dat, said Quimbo. Well, boys, the best way is to give him the flogging to do, till he gets over his notions. Break him in. Lord, Massa'll have hard work to get that out of him. It'll have to come out of him, though, said Legree, as he rolled his tobacco in his mouth. Now, dar's Lucy, de aggravatin' this ugliest wench on the place, pursued Sambo. Take care, Sam. I shall begin to think what's the reason for your spite again, Lucy. Well, Massa knows she's sought herself up again, Massa, and wouldn't have me when he telled her to. I'd have flogged her into it, said Legree, spitting. Only there's such a press o' work, it don't seem worth a while to upset her just now. She's slender, but these yer slender gals will bear half killin' to get their own way. Well, Lucy was real aggravatin' and lazy, sulkin' around, wouldn't do nothin', and Tom he stuck up for her. He did, eh? Well, then, Tom shall have the pleasure of flogging her. It'll be a good practice for him, and he won't put it on to the gal like you devils, neither. Ho, ho, ha, 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 laughed both the sooty wretches, and the diabolical sound seemed, in truth, a not unapt expression of the fiendish character which Legree gave them. Well, but, Massa, Tom and Miss Cassie, and they among em filled Lucy's basket. I rather guess their weights in it, Massa. I do the weighing, said Legree emphatically. Both the drivers again laughed their diabolical laugh. So, he added, Miss Cassie did her day's work. She picks like the devil and all his angels. She's got em all in her, I believe said Legree, and, growling a brutal oath, he proceeded to the weighing-room. Slowly the weary, dispirited creatures wound their way into the room, and, with crouching reluctance, presented their baskets to be weighed. Legree noted on a slate, on the side of which was pasted a list of names, the amount. Tom's basket was weighed and approved, and he looked, with an anxious glance, for the success of the woman he had befriended. Tottering with weakness, she came forward and delivered her basket. It was a full weight as Legree well perceived. But, affecting anger, he said, "'What, you lazy beast! Short again! Stand aside! You'll catch it pretty soon!' The woman gave a groan of utter despair, and sat down on a board. The person who had been called Missy Cassie now came forward, and, with a haughty, negligent air, delivered her basket. As she delivered it, Legree looked in her eyes with a sneering yet inquiring glance. She fixed her black eyes steadily on him, her lips moved slightly and she said something in French. What it was, no one knew, but Legree's face became perfectly demoniacal in its expression as she spoke. He half raised his hand as if to strike, a gesture which she regarded with fierce disdain as she turned and walked away. "'And now,' said Legree, "'come here, you, Tom. You see, I told you I didn't buy you just for the common work. I mean to promote you, and make a driver of you. And to-night you may just as well begin to get your hand in.' Now you just take this yar gal and flog her. You seen enough on to know how. I beg Massa's pardon, said Tom. Hopes Massa won't set me at that. It's what I ain't used to, never did, and can't do, no way possible. You'll learn a pretty smart chance of things that you never did know before I've done with you, said Legree, taking up a cowhide and striking Tom a heavy blow across the cheek, and followed up the inflection by a shower of blows. There, he said, as he stopped to rest. Now, will you tell me you can't do it? Yes, Massa, said Tom, putting up his hand to wipe the blood that trickled down his face. I'm willing to work night and day, and work while there's life and breath in me. But this yar thing I can't feel it right to do. 
and Massa I never shall do it, never. Tom had a remarkably smooth, soft voice, and a habitually respectful manner, that had given Legree an idea that he would be cowardly and easily subdued. When he spoke these last words, a thrill of amazement went through every one. The poor woman clasped her hands and said, "'Oh, Lord!' and every one involuntarily looked at each other and drew in their breath, as if to prepare for the storm that was about to burst. Legree looked stupefied and confounded, but at last burst forth, "'What?' You blasted black beast! Tell me you don't think it right to do what I tell you? What have any of you cousin cattle to do with thinking what's right? I'll put a stop to it. Why, what do you think you are? Maybe you think you're a gentleman master, Tom, to be a-telling your master what's right and what ain't, so you pretend it's wrong to flog the gal. I think so, massa, said Tom. The poor critter's sick and feeble. Twould be downright cruel, and it's what I never will do, nor begin to. Massa, if you mean to kill me, kill me. But as to my raising my hand agin any one here, I never shall. I'll die first." Tom spoke in a mild voice, but with a decision that could not be mistaken. Legree shook with anger, his greenish eyes glared fiercely, and his very whiskers seemed to curl with passion. But like some ferocious beast that plays with its victim before he devours it, he kept back his strong impulse to proceed to immediate violence and broke out into bitter raillery. "'Well, here's a pious dog at last let down among his sinners, a saint, a gentleman, and no less, to talk to us sinners about our sins. Powerful holy critter he must be. Here, you rascal, you make believe to be so pious. Didn't you never hear, out of your Bible, servants obey your masters? Ain't I your master? Didn't I pay down twelve hundred dollars cash for all there is inside your old cussed black shell?' "'Ain't your mind now, body and soul?' he said, giving Tom a violent kick with his heavy boot. "'Tell me!' In the very depth of physical suffering, bowed by brutal oppression, this question shot a gleam of joy and triumph through Tom's soul. He suddenly stretched himself up, and looking earnestly to heaven, while the tears and blood that flowed down his face mingled, he exclaimed, "'No! No! No! My soul ain't yours, Massa!' You haven't bought it. You can't buy it. It's been bought and paid for by one that is able to keep it. No matter, no matter. You can't harm me." "'I can't,' said Legree, with a sneer. "'We'll see. We'll see. Here, Sambo, Quimbo, give this dog such a breakin' in as he won't get over this month.' The two gigantic negroes that now laid hold of Tom, with fiendish exultation in their faces, might have formed no unapt personification of powers of darkness. The poor woman screamed with apprehension, and all rose, as if by general impulse, while they dragged him unresisting from the place. End of chapter 33「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 34 The Quadroon's Story And behold the tears of such as are oppressed, and on the side of their oppressors there was power. Wherefore I praise the dead that are already dead more than the living that are yet alive. Ecclesiastes 4, 1. 
It was late at night, and Tom lay groaning and bleeding alone, in an old forsaken room of the gin-house, among pieces of broken machinery, piles of damaged cotton, and other rubbish which had there accumulated. The night was damp and close, and the thick air swarmed with myriads of mosquitoes, which increased the restless torture of his wounds. Whilst a burning thirst, a torture beyond all others, filled up the uttermost measure of physical anguish. Oh, good Lord! Do look down! Give me the victory! Give me the victory over all! prayed poor Tom in his anguish. A footstep entered the room behind him, and the light of a lantern flashed on his eyes. Who's there? Oh, for the Lord's massy! Please give me some water! The woman, Cassie, for it was she, set down her lantern, and, pouring water from a bottle, raised his head and gave him drink. Another and another cup were drained, with feverish eagerness. "'Drink all ye want,' she said. "'I knew how it would be. It isn't the first time I've been out in the night, carrying water to such as you.' "'Thank you, Mrs.' said Tom, when he had done drinking. "'Don't call me Mrs. I'm a miserable slave like yourself, a lower one than you can ever be,' said she bitterly. "'But now,' said she, going to the door, and dragging in a small palaise, over which she had spread linen cloths wet with cold water, "'try, my poor fellow, to roll yourself on to this.' Stiff with wounds and bruises, Tom was a long time in accomplishing this movement, but when done he felt a sensible relief from the cooling application to his wounds. The woman, whom long practice with the victims of brutality had made familiar with many healing arts, went on to make many applications to Tom's wounds, by means of which he was soon somewhat relieved. Now, said the woman, when she had raised his head on a roll of damaged cotton which served for a pillow, there's the best I can do for you. Tom thanked her, and the woman, sitting down on the floor, drew up her knees, and embraced them with her arms, looked fixedly before her with a bitter and painful expression of countenance. Her bonnet fell back, and long wavy streams of black hair fell around her singular and melancholy face. "'It's no use, my poor fellow,' she broke out at last. "'It's of no use this you've been trying to do. You were a brave fellow. You had the right on your side, but it's all in vain and out of the question for you to struggle. You are in the devil's hands. He is the strongest, and you must give up." Give up! And had not human weakness and physical agony whispered that before? Tom started. For the bitter woman, with her wild eyes and melancholy voice, seemed to him an embodiment of the temptation with which he had been wrestling. "'O oh Lord! O oh Lord!' he groaned. "'How can I give up?' "'There's no use calling on the Lord. He never hears,' said the woman steadily. "'There isn't any God, I believe. Or, if there is, he's taken sides against us. All goes against us, heaven and earth. Everything is pushing us into hell. Why shouldn't we go?' Tom closed his eyes, and shuddered at the dark, atheistic words. "'You see,' said the woman, "'you don't know anything about it. I do.' I've been on this place five years, body and soul, under this man's foot, and I hate him as I do the devil. Here you are, on a lone plantation, ten miles from any other, in the swamps, not a white person here who could testify if you were burned alive, if you were scalded, cut into inch pieces, set up for the dogs to tear, or hung up and whipped to death, 
There's no law here, of God or man, that can do you or any one of us the least good. And this man, there's no earthly thing that he's too good to do. I could make anyone's hair rise and their teeth chatter, if I should only tell what I've seen and been knowing to here, and it's no use resisting. Did I want to live with him? Wasn't I a woman delicately bred? And he, God in heaven, what was he, and is he? And yet I've lived with him these five years, and cursed every moment of my life, night and day. And now he's got a new one, a young thing, only fifteen, and she brought up, she says, piously. Her good mistress taught her to read the Bible, and she's brought her Bible here to hell with her. And the woman laughed a wild and doleful laugh that rung with a strange supernatural sound through the old ruined shed. Tom folded his hands, all was darkness and horror. Oh, Jesus, Lord Jesus, have you quite forgot us poor critters? burst forth at last. Help, Lord, I perish! The woman sternly continued, And what are these miserable low dogs you work with, that you should suffer on their account? Every one of them would turn against you the first time they got a chance. They are all of them as low and cruel to each other as they can be. There's no use in your suffering to keep from hurting them." "'Poor critters,' said Tom. "'What made em cruel? And if I give out, I shall get used to it, and grow little by little just like em. No, no, missus, I've lost everything—wife, and children, and home, and a kind massa, and he would have set me free if you'd only lived a week longer. I've lost everything in this world, and it's clean gone forever, and now I can't lose heaven, too. No, I can't get to be wicked besides all. But it can't be that the Lord will lay sin to our account, said the woman. He won't charge it to us when we're forced to it. He'll charge it to them that drove us to it. Yes, said Tom, but that won't keep us from growing wicked. If I get to be as hard-hearted as that our Sambo, and as wicked, they won't make much odds to me how I come so. It's the being so. That ours what I'm a-dreadin'." The woman fixed a wild and startled look on Tom, as if a new thought had struck her, and then, heavily groaning, said, "'Oh, God, a mercy! You speak the truth! Oh, oh, oh!' and with groans she fell on the floor, like one crushed and writhing under the extremity of mental anguish. There was a silence, a while, in which the breathing of both parties could be heard, when Tom faintly said, "'Oh, please, missus!' The woman suddenly rose up, with her face composed to its usual stern, melancholy expression. "'Please, missus! I saw him throw my coat in that our corner, and in my coat-pocket is my Bible.' if Mrs. would please get it for me." Cassie went and got it. Tom opened at once to a heavily marked passage, much worn, of the last scenes in the life of him by whose stripes we are healed. If Mrs. would only be so good as read that are, it's better than water. Cassie took the book with a dry, proud air and looked over the passage. She then read aloud in a soft voice, and with a beauty of intonation that was peculiar that touching account of anguish and of glory. Often as she read her voice faltered, and sometimes failed her altogether, when she would stop with an air of frigid composure till she had mastered herself. When she came to the touching words, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do, she threw down the book, and burying her face in the heavy masses of her hair, she sobbed aloud with a convulsive violence. Tom was weeping also, and occasionally uttering a smothered ejaculation. "'If we only could keep up that our said Tom. It seemed to come so natural to him, and we have to fight so hard for it. Oh, Lord, help us! Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, do help us!' "'Mrs.' said Tom, after a while. "'I can see that. Somehow you're quite above me in everything. But there's one thing Mrs. might learn even from poor Tom. He said the Lord took sides against us because he lets us be abused and knocked round. But you see what come on his own son, the blessed Lord of glory? Wa'n't he allus poor? And have we any on us, yet come so low as he come? The Lord han't forgot us. I'm sartin on that are. Oh, if, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign, Scriptures says. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. Didn't they all suffer? The Lord and all his? It tells how they were stoned and sawn asunder, and wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, and was destitute, afflicted, tormented. Suffering ain't no reason to make us think the Lord's turned agin us. But just the contrary. If only we hold on to him, and doesn't give up to sin. But why does he put us where we can't help but sin?" said the woman. "'I think we can help it,' said Tom. "'You'll see,' said Cassie. "'What'll you do? Tomorrow they'll be at you again. I know em. I've seen all their doings. I can't bear to think of all they'll bring you to, and they'll make you give out at last.' "'Lord Jesus,' said Tom, "'you will take care of my soul. Oh, Lord, do! Don't let me give out!' "'Oh, dear,' said Cassie, "'I've heard all this crying and praying before, and yet they've been broken down and brought under. There's Emmeline. She's trying to hold on, and you're trying, but what use? You must give up, or be killed by inches.' "'Well, then, I will die.' said Tom. Spin it out as long as they can. They can't help my dying some time. And after that they can't do no more. I'm clar. I'm set. I know the Lord'll help me, and bring me through." The woman did not answer. She sat with her black eyes intently fixed on the floor. "'Maybe it's the way,' she murmured to herself. But those that have given up, there's no hope for them, none. We live in filth and grow loathsome, till we loathe ourselves. We long to die, and we don't dare to kill ourselves. No hope. No hope. No hope? This girl now, just as old as I was. You see me now, she said, speaking to Tom very rapidly. See what I am. Well, I was brought up in luxury. The first I remember is playing about when I was a child in splendid parlors, when I was kept dressed up like a doll, and company and visitors used to praise me. There was a garden opening from the saloon windows, and there I used to play hide-and-seek under the orange trees with my brothers and sisters. I went to a convent, and there I learned music, French, and embroidery, and what not, and when I was fourteen I came out to my father's funeral. He died very suddenly, and when the property came to be settled, they found that there was scarcely enough to cover the debts, and when the creditors took an inventory of the property, I was set down in it. My mother was a slave-woman, and my father had always meant to set me free, but he had not done it, 
and so I was set down in the list. I'd always known who I was, but never thought much about it. Nobody ever expects that a strong, healthy man is going to die. My father was a well man only four hours before he died. It was one of the first cholera cases in New Orleans. The day after the funeral my father's wife took her children and went up to her father's plantation. I thought they treated me strangely, but didn't know. There was a young lawyer who they left to settle the business, and he came every day and was about the house and spoke very politely to me. He brought with him one day a young man whom I thought the handsomest I had ever seen. I shall never forget that evening. I walked with him in the garden. I was lonesome and full of sorrow, and he was so kind and gentle to me, and he told me that he had seen me before I went to the convent, and that he had loved me a great while, and that he would be my friend and protector. In short, though he didn't tell me, he had paid two thousand dollars for me, and I was his property. I became his willingly, for I loved him. Loved, said the woman, stopping. Oh, how I did love that man! How I love him now! and always shall while I breathe. He was so beautiful, so high, so noble. He put me into a beautiful house with servants, horses and carriages and furniture and dresses. Everything that money could buy he gave me, but I didn't set any value on all that. I only cared for him. I loved him better than my God and my own soul, and if I tried I couldn't do any other way from what he wanted me to. I wanted only one thing. I did want him to marry me. I thought, if he loved me as he said he did, and if I was what he seemed to think I was, he would be willing to marry me and set me free. But he convinced me that it would be impossible, and he told me that, if we were only faithful to each other, it was marriage before God. If that is true, wasn't I that man's wife? Wasn't I faithful? For seven years didn't I study every look and motion, and only live and breathe to please him? He had the yellow fever, and for twenty days and nights I watched with him, I alone, and gave him all his medicine, and did everything for him, and then he called me his good angel, and said I'd saved his life. We had two beautiful children. The first was a boy, and we called him Henry. He was the image of his father. He had such beautiful eyes, such a forehead and his hair hung all in curls around it, and he had all his father's spirit, and his talent, too. Little Elise, he said, looked like me. He used to tell me that I was the most beautiful woman in Louisiana. He was so proud of me and the children. He used to love to have me dress them up, and take them and me about in an open carriage, and hear the remarks that people would make on us, and he used to fill my ears constantly with the fine things that were said in praise of me and the children. Oh, those were happy days! I thought I was as happy as anyone could be, but then there came evil times. He had a cousin come to New Orleans, who was his particular friend. He thought all the world of him, but from the first time I saw him I couldn't tell why. I dreaded him, for I felt sure he was going to bring misery on us. He got Henry to going out with him, and often he would not come home nights till two or three o'clock. I did not dare say a word, for Henry was so high-spirited. I was afraid to. He got him to the gaming-houses, and he was one of the sort that, when he once got a-going there, there was no holding back. And then he introduced him to another lady, and I saw soon that his heart was gone from me. He never told me, but I saw it. I knew it, day after day. I felt my heart breaking, but I could not say a word. At this 
the wretch offered to buy me and the children of Henry to clear off his gambling debts, which stood in the way of his marrying as he wished. And he sold us. He told me one day that he had business in the country, and should be gone two or three weeks. He spoke kinder than usual, and said he should come back. But it didn't deceive me. I knew that the time had come. I was just like one turned into stone. I couldn't speak, nor shed a tear. He kissed me and kissed the children a good many times, and went out. I saw him get on his horse, and I watched him till he was quite out of sight, and then I fell down and fainted. Then he came, the cursed wretch. He came to take possession. He told me that he had bought me and my children, and showed me the papers. I cursed him before God, and told him I'd die sooner than live with him. "'Just as you please,' said he. "'But if you don't behave reasonably, I'll sell both the children where you shall never see them again.' He told me that he always had meant to have me from the first time he saw me, and that he had drawn Henry on and got him in debt on purpose to make him willing to sell me that he had got him in love with another woman, and that I might know, after all that, that he should not give up for a few airs and tears, and things of that sort. I gave up, for my hands were tied. He had my children. Whenever I resisted his will anywhere, he would talk about selling them, and he made me as submissive as he desired. Oh, what a life it was, to live with my heart breaking every day, to keep on, 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 loving, when it was only misery and to be bound body and soul to one I hated. I used to love to read to Henry, to play to him, to waltz with him, and sing to him, but everything I did for this one was a perfect drag. Yet I was afraid to refuse anything. He was very imperious and harsh to the children. Elise was a timid little thing, but Henry was bold and high-spirited like his father, and he had never been brought under in the least by any one. He was always finding fault and quarrelling with him, and I used to live in daily fear and dread. I tried to make the child respectful. I tried to keep them apart, for I held on to those children like death, but it did no good. He sold both those children. He took me to ride one day, and when I came home they were nowhere to be found. He told me he had sold them. He showed me the money, the price of their blood. Then it seemed as if all good forsook me. I raved and cursed cursed God and man, and, for a while, I believe he really was afraid of me. But he didn't give up so. He told me that my children were sold, but whether I ever saw their faces again depended on him, and that, if I wasn't quiet, they should smart for it. Well, you can do anything with a woman when you've got her children. He made me submit. He made me be peaceable. He flattered me with hopes that perhaps he would buy them back, and so things went on a week or two. One day I was out walking and passed by the calaboose. I saw a crowd about the gate and heard a child's voice, and suddenly my Henry broke away from two or three men who were holding the poor boy screaming, and looked into my face, and held on to me, until, in tearing him off, they tore the skirt of my dress half away, and they carried him in, screaming, Mother! 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 There was one man stood there seemed to pity me. I offered him all the money I had if he'd only interfere. He shook his head, and said that the boy had been impudent and disobedient ever since he bought him, and that he was going to break him in once for all. I turned and ran, and every step of the way I thought that I heard him scream. I got into the house, ran all out of breath to the parlour where I found Butler. I told him, and begged him to go and interfere. He only laughed, and told me the boy had got his deserts. 
You've got to be broken in. The sooner the better. What did I expect? he asked. It seemed to me something in my head snapped at that moment. I felt dizzy and furious. I remember seeing a great sharp bowie-knife on the table. I remember something about catching it, and flying it upon him. And then all grew dark, and I didn't know any more, not for days and days. When I came to myself I was in a nice room, but not mine. An old black woman tended me, and a doctor came to see me, and there was a great deal of care taken of me. After a while I found that he had gone away and left me at this house to be sold, and that's why they took such pains with me. I didn't mean to get well, and hoped I shouldn't, but in spite of me the fever went off, and I grew healthy, and finally got up. Then they made me dress up every day, and gentlemen used to come in and stand and smoke their cigars, and look at me, and ask questions, and debate my price. I was so gloomy and silent that none of them wanted me. They threatened to whip me if I wasn't gayer, and didn't take some pains to make myself agreeable. At length one day came a gentleman named Stuart. He seemed to have some feeling for me. He saw that something dreadful was on my heart, and he came to see me alone a great many times, and finally persuaded me to tell him. He bought me at last, and promised to do all he could to find and buy back my children. He went to the hotel where my Henry was. They told him he had been sold to a planter up on Pearl River. That was the last I ever heard. Then he found where my daughter was. An old woman was keeping her. He offered an immense sum for her, but they would not sell her. Butler found out that it was for me he wanted her, and he sent word that I should never have her. Captain Stewart was very kind to me. He had a splendid plantation, and took me to it. In the course of a year I had a son born. Oh, that child, how I loved it! How just like my poor Henry the little thing looked! But I had made up my mind. Yes, I had. I would never again let a child live to grow up. I took the little fellow in my arms when he was two weeks old, and kissed him, and cried over him, and then I gave him laudanum, and held him close to my bosom while he slept to death. How I mourned and cried over it! And who ever dreamed that it was anything but a mistake that had made me give it the laudanum? But it's one of the few things that I'm glad of now. I am not sorry to this day. He at least is out of pain. What better than death could I give him, poor child? After a while the cholera came, and Captain Stewart died. Everybody died that wanted to live, and I, I, though I went down to death's door, I lived. Then I was sold and passed from hand to hand till I grew faded and wrinkled, and I had a fever, and then this wretch bought me, and brought me here, and here I am. The woman stopped. She had hurried on through her story with a wild, passionate utterance, sometimes seeming to address it to Tom, and sometimes speaking as in a soliloquy. So vehement and overpowering was the force with which she spoke that, for a season, Tom was beguiled even from the pain of his wounds, and raising himself on one elbow watched her as she paced restlessly up and down, her long black hair swaying heavily about her as she moved. "'You tell me,' she said after a pause, "'that there is a God a god that looks down and sees all these things. Maybe it's so. The sisters in the convent used to tell me of a day of judgment when everything is coming to light. Won't there be vengeance then? They think it's nothing what we suffer, nothing what our children suffer. It's all a small matter. Yet I've walked the streets when it seemed as if I had misery enough in my one heart to sink the city. 
I've wished the houses would fall on me, or the stones sink under me. Yes, and in the judgment day I will stand up before God, a witness against those that have ruined me, and my children, body and soul. When I was a girl I thought I was religious. I used to love God and prayer. Now I'm a lost soul, pursued by devils that torment me day and night. They keep pushing me on and on, and I'll do it too some of these days," she said, clenching her hand, while an insane light glanced in her heavy black eyes. I'll send him where he belongs, a short way, too, one of these nights, if they burn me alive for it." A wild, long laugh rang through the deserted room, and ended in a hysteric sob. She threw herself on the floor, in convulsive sobbing and struggles. In a few moments the frenzy fit seemed to pass off. She rose slowly, and seemed to collect herself. "'Can I do anything more for you, my poor fellow?' she said, approaching where Tom lay. "'Shall I give you some more water?' There was a graceful and compassionate sweetness in her voice and manner, as she said this, that formed a strange contrast with the former wildness. Tom drank the water, and looked earnestly and pitifully into her face. "'Oh, missus, I wish you'd go to him that can give you living waters.' "'Go to him. Where is he? Who is he?' said Cassie. "'Him that you read of to me, the Lord.' I used to see the picture of him over the altar when I was a girl," said Cassie, her dark eyes fixing themselves in an expression of mournful reverie. But he isn't here. There's nothing here but sin and long, long, long despair. Oh!" She laid her hand on her breast and drew in her breath, as if to lift a heavy weight. Tom looked as if he would speak again, but she cut him short with a decided gesture. Don't talk, my poor fellow. Try to sleep if you can." And, placing water in his reach, and making whatever little arrangements for his comforts she could, Cassie left the shed. End of chapter 34「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe Chapter 35 The Tokens And slight withal may be the things that bring back on the heart the weight which it would fling aside forever. It may be a sound, a flower, the wind, the ocean which shall wound, striking the electric chain wherewith we're darkly bound. Child Harold's Pilgrimage, Can, Number Four. The sitting room of Legree's establishment was a large, long room with a wide, ample fireplace. It had once been hung with a showy and expensive paper, which now hung mouldering, torn, and discolored from the damp walls. The place had that particular sickening, unwholesome smell compounded of mingled damp, dirt, and decay, which one often notices in close old houses. The wallpaper was defaced in spots by slops of beer and wine, or garnished with chalk memorandums, and long sums footed up, as if somebody had been practicing arithmetic there. In the fireplace stood a brazier full of burning charcoal, for though the weather was not cold, the evenings always seemed damp and chilly in that great room, and Legree, moreover, wanted a place to light his cigars, and heat his water for punch. The ruddy glare of the charcoal displayed the confused and unpromising aspect of the room. Saddles, bridles, several sorts of harness, 
riding-whips, overcoats, and various articles of clothing scattered up and down the room in confused variety, and the dogs, of whom we have before spoken, had encamped themselves among them to suit their own taste and convenience. Legree was just mixing himself a tumbler of punch, pouring his hot water from a cracked and broken-nosed pitcher, grumbling as he did so. "'Plague on that Sambo to kick up this yar row between me and the new hands. The fellow won't be fit to work for a week now, right in the press of the season.' "'Yes, just like you,' said a voice behind his chair. It was the woman, Cassie, who had stolen upon his soliloquy. "'Ha! You she-devil! You've come back, have you?' "'Yes, I have,' she said coolly. "'Come to have my own way, too.' "'You lie, you jade! I'll be up to my word. Either behave yourself, or stay down to the quarters, and fare and work with the rest.' "'I'd rather ten thousand times,' said the woman, "'live in the dirtiest hole at the quarters than be under your hoof.' "'But you are under my hoof for all that,' said he, turning upon her with a savage grin. "'That's one comfort. So sit down here on my knee, my dear, and hear to reason,' said he, laying hold on her wrist. "'Simon Legree, take care.' said the woman, with a sharp flash of her eye, a glance so wild and insane in its light as to be almost appalling. "'You're afraid of me, Simon,' she said deliberately, "'and you've reason to be. But be careful, for I've got the devil in me!' The last words she whispered in a hissing tone close to his ear. "'Get out! I believe to my soul you have,' said Legree, pushing her from him, and looking uncomfortably at her. "'After all, Cassie,' he said, "'why can't you be friends with me, as you used to?' "'Used to!' said she bitterly. She stopped short. A word of choking feelings, rising in her heart, kept her silent. Cassie had always kept over Legree the kind of influence that a strong, impassioned woman can ever keep over the most brutal man. But of late she had grown more and more irritable and restless under the hideous yoke of her servitude, and her irritability, at times, broke out into raving insanity, and this liability made her a sort of object of dread to Legree who had that superstitious horror of insane persons which is common to coarse and uninstructed minds. When Legree brought Emmeline to the house, all the smouldering embers of womanly feeling flashed up in the worn heart of Cassie, and she took part with the girl, and a fierce quarrel ensued between her and Legree. Legree in a fury swore she should be put to field service if she would not be peaceable. Cassie, with proud scorn, declared she would go to the field and she worked there one day, as we have described, to show how perfectly she scorned the threat. Legree was secretly uneasy all day, for Cassie had an influence over him from which he could not free himself. When she presented her basket at the scales he had hoped for some concession, and addressed her in a sort of half-conciliatory, half-scornful tone, and she had answered with a bitterest contempt. The outrageous treatment of poor Tom had roused her still more, and she had followed Legree to the house, with no particular intention, but to upbraid him for his brutality. "'I wish, Cassie,' said Legree, "'you'd behave yourself decently.' "'You talk about behaving decently! And what have you been doing? You, who haven't even sense enough to keep from spoiling one of your best hands, right in the most pressing season, just for your devilish temper!' "'I was a fool, it's a fact, to let any such brangle come up,' said Legree. "'But when the boy set up his will, he had to be broke in.' "'I reckon you won't break him in.' "'Won't I?' said Legree, rising passionately. "'I'd like to know if I won't. He'll be the first nigger that ever came it round me. I'll break every bone in his body, but he shall give up.' Just then the door opened, and Sambo entered. He came forward, bowing, and 
holding out something in a paper. "'What's that, you dog?' said Legree. "'It's a witch thing, massa.' "'A what?' "'Something that niggers gets from witches keeps them from feeling when they's flogged. He had it tied round his neck with a black string.' Legree, like most godless and cruel men, was superstitious. He took the paper and opened it uneasily. There dropped out of it a silver dollar and a long, shining curl of fair hair, hair which, like a living thing, twined itself round Legree's fingers. "'Damnation!' he screamed in sudden passion, stamping on the floor, and pulling furiously at the hair as if it burned him. "'Where did this come from? Take it off! Burn it up! Burn it up!' he screamed, tearing it off and throwing it into the charcoal. "'What'd you bring it to me for?' Sambo stood with his heavy mouth wide open and aghast with wonder, and Cassie, who was preparing to leave the apartment, stopped and looked at him in perfect amazement. "'Don't you bring me any more of your devilish things!' said he, shaking his fist at Sambo, who retreated hastily towards the door, and, picking up the silver dollar, he sent it smashing through the window-pane, out into the darkness. Sambo was glad to make his escape. When he was gone, Legree seemed a little ashamed of his fit of alarm. He sat doggedly down in his chair, and began sullenly slipping his tumbler of punch. Cassie prepared herself for going out, unobserved by him, and slipped away to minister to poor Tom, as we have already related. And what was the matter with Legree? And what was there in a simple curl of fair hair to appall that brutal man, familiar with every form of cruelty? To answer this we must carry the reader backward in his history. Hard and reprobate, as the godless man seemed now, there had been a time when he had been rocked on the bosom of a mother, cradled with prayers and pious hymns, his now seared brow bedewed with the waters of holy baptism. In early childhood a fair-haired woman had led him, at the sound of Sabbath-bell, to worship and to pray. Far in New England that mother had trained her only son with long, unwearied love and patient prayers. Born of a hard-tempered sire, on whom that gentle woman had wasted a world of unvalued love, Legree had followed in the steps of his father. Boisterous, unruly, and tyrannical, he despised all her counsel, and would none of her reproof, and at an early age broke from her to seek his fortunes at sea. He never came home but once after, and then his mother, with the yearning of a heart that must love something, and has nothing else to love, clung to him, and sought, with passionate prayers and entreaties, to win him from a life of sin to his soul's eternal good. That was Legree's day of grace. Then good angels called him. Then he was almost persuaded, and mercy held him by the hand. His heart inly relented. There was a conflict. But sin got the victory, and he set all the force of his rough nature against the conviction of his conscience. He drank and swore, was wilder and more brutal than ever, and, one night, when his mother, in the last agony of her despair, knelt at his feet, he spurned her from him, threw her senseless on the floor, and with brutal curses fled to his ship. The next Legree heard of his mother was when, one night, as he was carousing among drunken companions, a letter was put into his hand. He opened it, and a lock of long, curling hair fell from it, and twined about his fingers. The letter told him his mother was dead, and that dying she blessed and forgave him. There is a dread, unhallowed necromancy of evil that turns things sweetest and holiest to phantoms of horror and affright. That pale, loving mother, her dying prayers, her forgiving love, wrought in that demoniac heart of sin only as a damning sentence, bringing with it a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. 
Legree burned the hair, and burned the letter, and when he saw them hissing and crackling in the flame, inly shuddered as he thought of everlasting fires. He tried to drink, and revel, and swear away the memory, but often in the deep night, whose solemn stillness arraigns the bad soul in forced communion with herself, he had seen that pale mother rising by his bedside, and felt the soft twining of that hair around his fingers, till the cold sweat would roll down his face, and he would spring from his bed in horror. Ye who have wondered to hear, in the same evangel, that God is love, and that God is a consuming fire, see ye not how, to the soul resolved in evil, perfect love is the most fearful torture, the seal and sentence of the direst despair? Blast it, said Legree to himself, as he sipped his liquor. Where did he get that? If it didn't look just like, whoa, I thought I'd forgot that. Curse me, if I think there's any such thing as forgetting anything, anyhow. Hang it! I'm lonesome. I mean to call M. She hates me, the monkey. I don't care. I'll make her come. Legree stepped out into the large entry, which went upstairs by what had formerly been a superb winding staircase. But the passageway was dirty and dreary, encumbered with boxes and unsightly litter. The stairs, uncarpeted, seemed winding up in the gloom to nobody knew where. The pale moonlight streamed through a shattered fanlight over the door. The air was unwholesome and chilly, like that of a vault. Legree stopped at the foot of the stairs and heard a voice singing. It seemed strange and ghost-like in that dreary old house, perhaps because of the already tremulous state of his nerves. Hark! What is it? A wild, pathetic voice chants a hymn common among the slaves. Oh, there'll be morning, 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 oh, there'll be morning at the judgment seat of Christ. Blast the girl, said Legree. I'll choke her. Em! Em! he called harshly, but only a mocking echo from the walls answered him. The sweet voice still sung on. Parents and children there shall part, parents and children there shall part shall part to meet no more. And clear and loud swelled through the empty halls the refrain, Oh, there'll be morning, 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 oh, there'll be morning at the judgment seat of Christ. Legree stopped. He would have been ashamed to tell of it, but large drops of sweat stood on his forehead. His heart beat heavy and thick with fear. He even thought he saw something white rising and glimmering in the gloom before him and shuddered to think what if the form of his dead mother should suddenly appear to him. I know one thing, he said to himself, as he stumbled back in the sitting-room and sat down. I'll let that fellow alone after this. What did I want of his cussed paper? I believe I am bewitched, sure enough. I've been shivering and sweating ever since. Where did he get that hair? It couldn't have been that. I burnt that up. I know I did. It would be a joke if hair could rise from the dead. Ah, Legree! that golden tress was charmed. Each hair had in it a spell of terror and remorse for thee, and was used by a mightier power to bind thy cruel hands from inflicting uttermost evil on the helpless. "'I say,' said Legree, stamping and whistling to the dogs, "'wake up, some of you, and keep me company.' But the dogs only opened one eye at him, sleepily, and closed it again. "'I'll have Sambo and Quimby up here, to sing and dance one of their hell-dances, and Keep off these horrid notions," said Legree. When putting on his hat he went on to the veranda, and blew a horn, with which he commonly summoned his two sable drivers. Legree was often wont, when in a gracious humor, to get these two worthies into his sitting-room, and, after warming them up with whiskey, 
amuse himself by setting them to singing, dancing, or fighting, as the humor took him. It was between one and two o'clock at night, as Cassie was returning from her ministrations to poor Tom, that she heard the sound of wild shrieking, whooping, hallooing, and singing from the sitting-room, mingled with the barking of dogs, and other symptoms of general uproar. She came up on the veranda steps and looked in. Legree and both the drivers, in a state of furious intoxication, were singing, whooping, upsetting chairs, and making all manner of ludicrous and horrid grimaces at each other. She rested her small, slender hand on the window-blind, and looked fixedly at them. There was a world of anguish, scorn, and fierce bitterness in her black eyes as she did so. "'Would it be a sin to rid the world of such a wretch?' she said to herself. She turned hurriedly away, and, passing round to a back door, glided upstairs and tapped at Emmeline's door. End of chapter 35「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe Chapter 36 Emmeline and Cassie Cassie entered the room and found Emmeline sitting, pale with fear, in the furthest corner of it. As she came in, the girl started up nervously, but, on seeing who it was, rushed forward, and, catching her arm, said, "'Oh, Cassie, is it you? I'm so glad you've come. I was afraid it was—oh, you don't know what a horrid noise there has been downstairs all this evening.' "'I ought to know,' said Cassie dryly. "'I've heard it often enough.' "'Oh, Cassie, do tell me. Couldn't we get away from this place? I don't care where. Into the swamp, among the snakes, anywhere. Couldn't we get somewhere away from here?' "'Nowhere but into our graves,' said Cassie. "'Did you ever try?' "'I've seen enough of trying, and what comes of it,' said Cassie. I'd be willing to live in the swamps and gnaw the bark from trees. I ain't scared of snakes. I'd rather have one near me than him," said Emmeline eagerly. "'There have been a good many here of my opinion,' said Cassie. "'But you couldn't stay in the swamps. You'd be tracked by the dogs, and brought back. And then—then—' "'What would he do?' said the girl, looking with breathless interest into her face. "'What wouldn't he do, you'd better ask,' said Cassie. He's learned his trade well, among the pirates in the West Indies. You wouldn't sleep much if I should tell you things I've seen—things that he tells of sometimes for good jokes. I've heard screams here that I haven't been able to get out of my head for weeks and weeks. There's a place way out down by the quarters where you can see a black, blasted tree, and the ground all covered with black ashes. Ask anyone what was down there, and see what they will dare tell you." Oh. What do you mean? I won't tell you. I hate to think of it. And I tell you, the Lord only knows what we may see to-morrow, if that poor fellow holds out as he's begun." "'Horrid!' said Emmeline, every drop of blood receding from her cheeks. "'Oh, Cassie, do tell me what I shall do!' "'What I've done. Do the best you can. Do what you must, and make it up in hating and cursing.' He wanted to make me drink some of his hateful brandy," said Emmeline, and I hate it so. You'd better drink," said Cassie. I hated it, too, and now I can't live without it. One must have something. Things don't look so dreadful when you take that. 
"'Mother used to tell me never to touch any such thing,' said Emmeline. "'Mother told you,' said Cassie, with a thrilling and bitter emphasis on the word mother. "'What use is it for mothers to say anything? You are all to be bought and paid for, and your souls belong to whoever gets you. That's the way it goes. I say, drink brandy, drink all you can, and it'll make things come easier.' "'Oh, Cassie, do pity me!' "'Pity you? Don't I?' Haven't I a daughter? Lord knows where she is and who she is now, going the way her mother went, before her, I suppose, and that her children must go after her. There's no end to the curse, for ever." "'I wish I'd never been born,' said Emmeline, wringing her hands. "'That's an old wish with me,' said Cassie. "'I've got used to wishing that. I'd die if I dared to,' she said, looking out into the darkness, with that still, fixed despair which was the habitual expression of her face when at rest. "'It would be wicked to kill oneself,' said Emmeline. "'I don't know why, no wickeder than things we live and do day after day. But the sisters told me things, when I was in the convent, that make me afraid to die. If it would only be the end of us, why, then—' Emmeline turned away and hid her face in her hands. While this conversation was passing in the chamber, Legree, overcome with his carouse, had sunk to sleep in the room below. Legree was not a habitual drunkard. His coarse, strong nature craved, and could endure, a continual stimulation that would have utterly wrecked and crazed a finer one. But a deep underlying spirit of cautiousness prevented his often yielding to appetite in such measure as to lose control of himself. This night, however, in his feverish efforts to banish from his mind those fearful elements of woe and remorse which woke within him, he had indulged more than common, so that, when he had discharged his sable attendants, he fell heavily on a settle in the room, and was sound asleep. Oh! How dares the bad soul to enter the shadowy world of sleep! that land whose dim outlines lie so fearfully near to the mystic scene of retribution! Legree dreamed. In his heavy and feverish sleep a veiled form stood beside him, and laid a cold, soft hand upon him. He thought he knew who it was, and shuddered with creeping horror, though the face was veiled. Then he thought he felt that hair twining round his fingers, and then that it slid smoothly round his neck, and tightened, and tightened, and he could not draw his breath, and then he thought voices whispered to him whispers that chilled him with horror. Then it seemed to him he was on the edge of a frightful abyss, holding on and struggling in mortal fear, while dark hands stretched up and were pulling him over. And Cassie came behind him, laughing, and pushed him, and then rose up that solemn veiled figure and drew aside the veil. It was his mother, and she turned away from him, and he fell down, 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 amid a confused noise of shrieks and groans and shouts of demon laughter and Legree awoke. Calmly the rosy hue of dawn was stealing into the room. The morning star stood, with its solemn holy eye of light, looking down on the man of sin from out of the brightening sky. Oh, with what freshness, what solemnity and beauty is each new day born, as if to say to insensate man, Behold, thou hast one more chance, strive for immortal glory. There is no speech nor language where this voice is not heard, but the bold, bad man heard it not. He woke with an oath and a curse. What to him was the gold and purple, the daily miracle of morning? 
what to him the sanctity of the star which the Son of God has hallowed as his own emblem? Brute-like he saw without perceiving, and, stumbling forward, poured out a tumbler of brandy, and drank half of it. "'I've had a ha of a night,' he said to Cassie, who just then entered from an opposite door. "'You'll get plenty of the same sort by and by,' said she dryly. "'What do you mean, you minx?' "'You'll find out one of these days,' returned Cassie, in the same tone. "'Now, Simon, I've one piece of advice to give you.' "'The devil you have!' "'My advice is,' said Cassie, steadily, as she began adjusting some things about the room, "'that you let Tom alone.' "'What business is of yours?' "'What? To be sure, I don't know what it should be. If you want to pay twelve hundred for a fellow and use him right up in the press of the season, just to serve your own spite, it's no business of mine. I've done what I could for him.' "'You have?' What business have you meddling in my matters? None, to be sure. I've saved you some thousands of dollars at different times by taking care of your hands. That's all the thanks I get. If your crop comes shorter into market than any of theirs, you won't lose your bet, I suppose. Tompkins won't lord it over you, I suppose. And you'll pay down your money like a lady, won't you? I think I see you doing it." Legree, like many other planters, had but one form of ambition to have in the heaviest crop of the season, and he had several bets on this very present season pending in the next town. Cassie, therefore, with women's tact, touched the only string that could be made to vibrate. "'Well, I'll let him off at what he's got,' said Legree. "'But he shall beg my pardon, and promise better fashions.' "'That he won't do,' said Cassie. "'Won't, eh?' "'No, he won't,' said Cassie. "'I'd like to know why, mistress,' said Legree, in the extreme of scorn. "'Because he's done right, and he knows it, and won't say he's done wrong.' "'Who a cuss-cars what he knows? The nigger shall say what I please, or—' "'Or you'll lose your bet on the cotton-crop by keeping him out of the field, just at this very press.' "'But he will give up. Of course he will. Don't I know what niggers is? He'll beg like a dog this morning.' "'He won't, Simon. You don't know this kind. You may kill him by inches. You won't get the first word of confession out of him.' "'We'll see. Where is he?' said Legree, going out. "'In the waste-room of the gin-house,' said Cassie. Legree, though he talked so stoutly to Cassie, still sallied forth from the house with a degree of misgiving, which was not common with him. His dreams of the past night, mingled with Cassie's prudential suggestions, considerably affected his mind. He resolved that nobody should be witness of his encounter with Tom, and determined, if he could not subdue him by bullying, to defer his vengeance, to be wreaked in a more convenient season. The solemn light of dawn, the angelic glory of the morning star, had looked in through the rude window of the shed where Tom was lying, and, as if descending on that star-beam, came the solemn words, I am the root and offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. The mysterious warnings and intimations of Cassie, so far from discouraging his soul, in the end had roused it, as with a heavenly call. He did not know but that the day of his death was dawning in the sky, and his heart throbbed with solemn throes of joy and desire, as he thought that the wondrous all of which he had often pondered, the great white throne, with its ever-radiant rainbow, the white-robed multitude, with voices as many waters, the crowns, the palms, the harps, 
might all break upon his vision before that sun should set again. And therefore, without shuddering or trembling, he heard the voice of his persecutor as he drew near. "'Well, my boy,' said Legree, with a contemptuous kick, "'how do you find yourself? Didn't I tell yer I could larn yer a thing or two? How do you like it, eh? How did your whilin' agree with yer, Tom? Ain't quite so crank as ye was last night. You couldn't treat a poor sinner now to a bit of sermon, could ye, eh?' Tom answered nothing. "'Get up, you beast!' said Legree, kicking him again. This was a difficult matter for one so bruised and faint, and, as Tom made efforts to do so, Legree laughed brutally. "'What makes you so spry this morning, Tom? Cotched cold, maybe, last night?' Tom by this time had gained his feet, and was confronting his master with a steady, unmoved front. "'The devil you can,' said Legree, looking him over. "'I believe you haven't got enough yet. Now, Tom, get right down on your knees, and beg my pardon for your shines last night.' Tom did not move. "'Down, you dog!' said Legree, striking him with his riding whip. "'Massa Legree,' said Tom, "'I can't do it. I did only what I thought was right. I shall do just so again, if ever the time comes. I never will do a cruel thing, come what may.' "'Yes, but you don't know what may come, Master Tom. You think what you've got is something. I tell you, taint anything, nothing at all. How would you like to be tied to a tree and have a slow fire lit up around you? Wouldn't that be pleasant, eh, Tom?' "'Massa,' said Tom, "'I know ye can do dreadful things, but—he stretched himself upward and clasped his hands—but after ye've killed the body, there ain't no more you can do, and, oh, there's all eternity to come after that." Eternity! The word thrilled through the black man's soul with light and power as he spoke. It thrilled through the sinner's soul, too, like the bite of a scorpion. Legree gnashed on him with his teeth, but rage kept him silent. And Tom, like a man disenthralled, spoke in a clear and cheerful voice. Massa Legree, as ye bought me, I'll be a true and faithful servant to ye. I'll give ye all the work of my hands, all my time, all my strength. But my soul I won't give up to mortal man. I will hold on to the Lord, and put His commands before all, die or live. You may be sure on it. Master Legree, I ain't a grain feared to die. I'd as soon die as not. You may whip me starve me, burn me. It'll only send me sooner where I want to go." "'I'll make you give out, though, for I've done,' said Legree, in a rage. "'I shall have help,' said Tom. "'You'll never do it.' "'Who the devil's going to help you?' said Legree, scornfully. "'The Lord Almighty,' said Tom. "'Dang you!' said Legree, as with one blow of his fist he felled Tom to the earth. A cold, soft hand fell on Legree's at this moment. He turned. It was Cassie's. But the cold, soft touch recalled his dream of the night before, and flashing through the chambers of his brain came all the fearful images of the night-watches, with a portion of the horror that accompanied them. "'Will you be a fool?' said Cassie, in French. "'Let him go. Let me alone to get him fit to be in the field again. Isn't it just as I told you?' They say the alligator— the rhinoceros, though enclosed in bullet-proof mail, have each a spot where they are vulnerable, 
and fierce, reckless, unbelieving reprobates have commonly this point in superstitious dread. Legree turned away, determined to let the point go for the time. "'Well, have it your own way,' he said doggedly to Cassie. "'Hark ye,' he said to Tom. "'I won't deal with you now, because the business is pressing, and I want all my hands, but I never forget. I'll score it against you, and some time I'll have my pay out of your old black hide, mind you.' Legree turned and went out. "'There you go,' said Cassie, looking darkly after him. "'Your reckoning's to come yet. My poor fellow, how are you?' The Lord God hath sent his angel, and shut the lion's mouth for this time," said Tom. "'For this time, to be sure,' said Cassie. "'But now you've got his ill-will upon you, to follow you day in, day out, hanging like a dog on your throat, sucking your blood, bleeding away your life, drop by drop. I know the man.'" End of chapter 36 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 37 Liberty. No matter with what solemnities he may have been devoted upon the altar of slavery, the moment he touches the sacred soil of Britain, the altar and the god sink together in the dust and he stands redeemed, regenerated, and disenthralled by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation. Curran. Note. John Philpot Curran, 1750-1817, Irish orator and judge, who worked for Catholic emancipation. A while we must leave Tom in the hands of his persecutors, while we turn to pursue the fortunes of George and his wife, whom we left in friendly hands in a farmhouse on the roadside. Tom Locker we left groaning and tousling in a most immaculately clean Quaker bed under the motherly supervision of Aunt Dorcas, who found him to the full as tractable a patient as a sick bison. Imagine a tall, dignified, spiritual woman whose clear muslin cap shades waves of silvery hair, parted on a broad, clear forehead which overarches thoughtful gray eyes. A snowy handkerchief of lisse crepe is folded neatly across her bosom. Her glossy brown silk dress rustles peacefully as she glides up and down the chamber. "'The devil!' says Tom Locker, giving a great throw to the bedclothes. "'I must request thee, Thomas, not to use such language,' says Aunt Dorcas, as she quietly rearranged the bed. "'Well, I won't, Granny, if I can help it,' says Tom but it is enough to make a fellow swear so cursedly hot." Dorcas removed a comforter from the bed, straightened the clothes again, and tucked them in till Tom looked something like a chrysalis, remarking as she did so, "'I wish, friend, thee would leave off cursing and swearing, and think upon thy ways.' "'What the devil,' said Tom, "'should I think of them for? Last thing ever I want to think of, hang it all!' And Tom flounced over, untucking and disarranging everything in a manner frightful to behold. "'That fellow and gal are here, I suppose,' said he, sullenly, after a pause. "'They are so,' said Dorcas. "'They'd better be off up to the lake,' said Tom. "'The quicker the better.' "'Probably they will do so,' said Aunt Dorcas, knitting peacefully. "'And hark ye,' said Tom, "'we've got correspondents in Sandusky that watch the boats for us. I don't care if I tell now. I hope they will get away, just to spite Marks, the cursed puppy. Damn him!' 
Thomas,' said Dorcas. "'I tell you, Granny, if you bottle a fellow up too tight, I shall split,' said Tom. "'But about the gal, tell him to dress her up some way so's to alter her. Her description's out in Sandusky.' "'We will attend to that matter,' said Dorcas, with characteristic composure. As we at this place take leave of Tom Locker, we may as well say that, having lain three weeks at the Quaker dwelling, sick with a rheumatic fever which set in in company with his other afflictions, Tom arose from his bed a somewhat sadder and wiser man, and, in place of slave-catching, betook himself to life in one of the new settlements, where his talents developed themselves more happily in trapping bears, wolves, and other inhabitants of the forest, in which he made himself quite a name in the land. Tom always spoke reverently of the Quakers. "'Nice people,' he would say. "'Wanted to convert me, but couldn't come it exactly. But tell you what, stranger, they do fix up a sick fellow first-rate, no mistake. Make just the tallest kind of broth and knick-knacks.' As Tom had informed them that their party would be looked for in Sandusky, it was thought prudent to divide them. Jim, with his old mother, was forwarded separately, and a night or two after, George and Eliza, with their child, were driven privately into Sandusky, and lodged beneath the hospital roof, preparatory to taking their last passage on the lake. Their night was now far spent, and the morning star of liberty rose fair before them. Electric word! What is it? Is there anything more in it than a name, a rhetorical flourish? Why, men and women of America, does your heart's blood thrill at that word, for which your fathers bled, and your braver mothers were willing that their noblest and best should die? Is there anything in it glorious and dear for a nation that is not also glorious and dear for a man? What is freedom to a nation but freedom to the individuals in it? What is freedom to that young man who sits there with his arms folded over his broad chest, the tint of African blood in his cheek, its dark fires in his eyes. What is freedom to George Harris? To your fathers, freedom was the right of a nation to be a nation. To him it is the right of a man to be a man, and not a brute. The right to call the wife of his bosom his wife, and to protect her from lawless violence. The right to protect and educate his child. The right to have a home of his own, a religion of his own, a character of his own, unsubject to the will of another. All these thoughts were rolling and seething in George's breast, as he was pensively leaning his head on his hand, watching his wife, as she was adapting to her slender and pretty form the articles of man's attire, in which it was deemed safest she should make her escape. "'Now for it,' said she, as she stood before the glass, and shook down her silky abundance of black curly hair. "'I say, George, it's almost a pity, isn't it?' she said, as she held up some of it playfully. Pity it's all got to come off." George smiled sadly, and made no answer. Eliza turned to the glass, and the scissors glittered as one long lock after another was detached from her head. "'There, now, that'll do,' she said, taking up a hairbrush. "'Now for a few fancy touches.' "'There! Ain't I pretty young fellow?' she said, turning around to her husband, laughing and blushing at the same time. "'You always will be pretty.' "'Do what you will,' said George. "'What does make you so sober?' said Eliza, kneeling on one knee, and laying her hand on his. "'We are only within twenty-four hours of Canada, they say. Only a day and a night on the lake, and then—oh, then—' "'Oh, Eliza,' said George, drawing her towards him, "'that is it. Now my fate is all narrowing down to a point. 
to come so near to be almost in sight and then lose all i should never live under it eliza don't fear said his wife hopefully the good lord would not have brought us so far if he didn't mean to carry us through i seem to feel him with us george you are a blessed woman eliza said george clasping her with a convulsive grasp but oh tell me can this great mercy be for us will these years and years of misery come to an end shall we be free i am sure of it george said eliza looking upward while tears of hope and enthusiasm shone on her long dark lashes i feel it in me that god is going to bring us out of bondage this very day i will believe you eliza said george rising suddenly up i will believe come let's be off well indeed said he holding her off at arm's length and looking admiringly at her you are a pretty little fellow that crop of little short curls is quite becoming put on your cap so a little to one side i never saw you look quite so pretty but it's almost time for the carriage i wonder if mrs smith has got harry rigged the door opened and a respectable middle-aged woman entered leading little harry dressed in girl's clothes what a pretty girl he makes said eliza turning him around we call him harriet you see don't the name come nicely the child stood gravely regarding his mother in her new and strange attire observing a profound silence and occasionally drawing deep sighs and peeping at her from under his dark curls does harry know mamma said eliza stretching her hands toward him the child clung shyly to the woman come eliza why do you try to coax him when you know that he has got to be kept away from you i know it's foolish said eliza yet i can't bear to have him turn away from me but come where's my cloak here how is it men put on cloaks george you must wear it so said her husband throwing it over his shoulders so then said eliza imitating the motion and i must stamp and take long steps and try to look saucy don't exert yourself said george there is now and then a modest young man and i think it would be easier for you to act that character and these gloves mercy upon us said eliza why my hands are lost in them i advise you to keep them on pretty strictly said george your slender paw might bring us all out now mrs smith you are to go under our charge and be our auntie you mind i've heard said mrs smith that there have been men down warning all the packet captains against a man and woman with a little boy they have said george well if we see any such people we can tell them a hack now drove to the door and the friendly family who had received the fugitives crowded around them with farewell greetings the disguises the party had assumed were in accordance with the hints of tom locker mrs smith a respectable woman from the settlement in canada whither they were fleeing being fortunately about crossing the lake to return thither had consented to appear as the aunt of little harry and in order to attach him to her he had been allowed to remain the last two days under her sole charge and an extra amount of petting jointed to an indefinite amount of seed-cakes and candy had cemented a very close attachment on the part of the young gentleman the hack drove to the wharf the two young men as they appeared walked up the plank into the boat eliza gallantly giving her arm to mrs smith and george attending to their baggage george was standing at the captain's office settling for his party when he overheard two men talking by his side 
"'I've watched every one that came on board,' said one, "'and I know they're not on this boat.' The voice was that of the clerk of the boat. The speaker whom he addressed was our sometime friend Marks, who, with that valuable perseverance which characterized him, had come on to Sandusky, seeking whom he might devour. "'You would scarcely know the woman from a white one,' said Marks. "'The man is a very light mulatto. He has a brand in one of his hands.' The hand with which George was taking the tickets and change trembled a little, but he turned coolly round, fixed an unconcerned glance on the face of the speaker, and walked leisurely toward another part of the boat, where Eliza stood waiting for him. Mrs. Smith, with little Harry, sought the seclusion of the ladies' cabin, where the dark beauty of the supposed little girl drew many flattering comments from the passengers. George had the satisfaction, as the bell rang out its farewell peal, to see Marks walk down the plank to the shore, and drew a long sigh of relief when the boat had put a returnless distance between them. It was a superb day. The blue waves of Lake Erie danced, rippling and sparkling in the sunlight. A fresh breeze blew from the shore, and the lordly boat ploughed her way right gallantly onward. Oh, what an untold world there is in one human heart! Who thought, as George walked calmly up and down the deck of the steamer, with his shy companion at his side, of all that was burning in his bosom? The mighty good that seemed approaching seemed too good, too fair, even to be a reality, and he felt a jealous dread, every moment of the day, that something would rise to snatch it from him. But the boat swept on, hours fleeted, and at last clear and full rose the blessed English shores shores charmed by a mighty swell, with one touch to dissolve every incantation of slavery, no matter in what language pronounced, or by what national power confirmed. George and his wife stood arm in arm as the boat neared the small town of Amherstburg in Canada. His breath grew thick and short. A mist gathered before his eyes. He silently pressed the little hand that lay trembling on his arm. The bell rang. The boat stopped. Scarcely seeing what he did, he looked out his baggage and gathered his little party. The little company were landed on the shore. They stood still till the boat had cleared, and then, with tears and embracings, the husband and wife, with their wondering child in their arms, knelt down and lifted up their hearts to God. "'Twas something like the burst from death to life, from the grave's cerements to the robes of heaven, from sin's dominion and from passion's strife, to the pure freedom of a soul forgiven, where all the bonds of death and hell are riven, and mortal puts on immortality, when mercy's hand hath turned the golden key, and mercy's voice hath said, Rejoice, thy soul is free. The little party were soon guided by Mrs. Smith to the hospitable abode of a good missionary, whom Christian charity has placed here as a shepherd to the outcast and wandering, who are constantly finding an asylum on this shore. Who can speak the blessedness of that first day of freedom? Is not the sense of liberty a higher and a finer one than any of the five? To move, speak, and breathe, go out and come in unwatched, and free from danger. Who can speak the blessings of that rest which comes down on the free man's pillow, under laws which ensure to him the rights that God has given to man? How fair and precious to that mother was that sleeping child's face, 
endeared by the memory of a thousand dangers. How impossible was it to sleep in the exuberant possession of such blessedness! And yet these two had not one acre of ground, not a roof that they could call their own. They had spent their all to the last dollar. They had nothing more than the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. Yet they could not sleep for joy. Oh, ye who take freedom from man, with what words shall ye answer it to God? End of chapter 37This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 38 The Victory. Thanks be unto God who giveth us this victory. 1 Corinthians 15:57. Have not many of us in the weary way of life felt in some hours how far easier it were? to die than to live. The martyr, when faced even by a death of bodily anguish and horror, finds in the very terror of his doom a strong stimulant and tonic. There is a vivid excitement, a thrill and fervor, which may carry through any crisis of suffering that is the birth-hour of eternal glory and rest. But to live, to wear on, day after day, of mean, bitter, low, harassing servitude, every nerve dampened and depressed, every power of feeling gradually smothered, this long and wasting heart-martyrdom, this slow, daily bleeding away of the inward life, drop by drop, hour after hour, this is the true searching test of what there may be in man or woman. When Tom stood face to face with his persecutor, and heard his threats, and thought in his very soul that his hour was come, his heart swelled bravely in him, and he thought he could bear torture and fire, bear anything, with a vision of Jesus and heaven, but just a step beyond. But when he was gone, and the present excitement passed off, came back the pain of his bruised and weary limbs, came back the sense of his utterly degraded, hopeless, forlorn estate, and the day passed wearily enough. Long before his wounds were healed, Legree insisted that he should be put to the regular field-work, and then came day after day of pain and weariness, aggravated by every kind of injustice and indignity that the ill-will of a mean and malicious mind could devise. Whoever in our circumstances has made trial of pain, even with all the alleviations which for us usually attend it, must know the irritation that comes with it. Tom no longer wondered at the habitual surliness of his associates. Nay, he found the placid, sunny temper which had been the habitude of his life broken in on, and sorely strained by the inroads of the same thing. He had flattered himself on leisure to read his Bible, but there was no such thing as leisure there. In the height of the season Legree did not hesitate to press all his hands through, Sundays and weekdays alike. Why shouldn't he? He made more cotton by it, and gained his wager and if it wore out a few more hands, he could buy better ones. At first Tom used to read a verse or two of his Bible by the flicker of the fire, after he had returned from his daily toil. But after the cruel treatment he received, he used to come home so exhausted that his head swam and his eyes failed when he tried to read, 
and he was fain to stretch himself down with the others in utter exhaustion. Is it strange that the religious peace and trust, which had upborne him hitherto, should give way to tossings of soul and despondent darkness? The gloomiest problem of this mysterious life was constantly before his eyes, souls crushed and ruined, evil triumphant, and God silent. It was weeks and months that Tom wrestled in his own soul in darkness and sorrow. He thought of Miss Ophelia's letter to his Kentucky friends, and would pray earnestly that God would send him deliverance, and then he would watch day after day in the vague hope of seeing somebody sent to redeem him, and, when nobody came, he would crush back to his soul bitter thoughts that it was vain to serve God, that God had forgotten him. He sometimes saw Cassie, and sometimes, when summoned to the house, caught a glimpse of the dejected form of Emmeline, but held very little communion with either. In fact, there was no time for him to commune with anybody. One evening he was sitting in utter dejection and prostration by a few decaying brands, where his coarse supper was baking. He put a few bits of brushwood on the fire, and strove to raise the light, and then drew his worn Bible from his pocket. There were all the marked pages which had thrilled his soul so often, words of patriarchs and seers, poets and sages, who from early time had spoken courage to man, voices from the great cloud of witnesses who ever surround us in the race of life. Had the word lost its power, or could the failing eye and weary sense no longer answer to the touch of that mighty inspiration? Heavily sighing, he put it in his pocket. A coarse laugh roused him. He looked up. Legree was standing opposite to him. "'Well, old boy,' he said, "'you find your religion don't work, it seems. I thought I should get that through your wool at last.' The cruel taunt was more than hunger and cold and nakedness. Tom was silent. "'You are a fool,' said Legree, "'for I meant to do well by you when I bought you. You might have been better off than Sambo or Quimbo either, and had easy times. And instead of getting cut up and thrashed every day or two, you might have had liberty to lord it around, and cut up the other niggers. And you might have had, now and then, a good warming of whiskey punch. Come, Tom, don't you think you'd better be reasonable? Heave that our old pack of trash in the fire, and join my church." "'The Lord forbid,' said Tom fervently. "'You see, the Lord ain't going to help you. If he had been, he wouldn't have let me get you. This yer religion is all a mess of lying trumpery, Tom. I know all about it. You'd better hold to me. I'm somebody, and can do something.' "'No, Massa,' said Tom. I'll hold on. The Lord may help me, or not help, but I'll hold to Him, and believe Him to the last." "'The more fool you,' said Legree, spitting scornfully at him, and spurning him with his foot. "'Never mind. I'll chase you down yet, and bring you under. You'll see.' And Legree turned away. When a heavy weight presses the soul to the lowest level at which endurance is possible, there is an instant and desperate effort of every physical and moral nerve to throw off the weight and hence the heaviest anguish often precedes a return tide of joy and courage. So was it now with Tom. The atheistic taunts of his cruel master sunk his before dejected soul to the lowest ebb, and, though the hand of faith still held to the eternal rock, it was a numb, despairing grasp. Tom sat like one stunned at the fire. Suddenly everything around him seemed to fade, 
and a vision rose before him of one crowned with thorns, buffeted and bleeding. Tom gazed in awe and wonder at the majestic patience of the face. The deep, pathetic eyes thrilled him to his innermost heart. His soul woke, as, with floods of emotion, he stretched out his hands and fell upon his knees, when gradually the vision changed. The sharp thorns became rays of glory, and in splendor inconceivable he saw that same face bending compassionately towards him, and a voice said, He that overcometh shall sit down with me on my throne, even as I also overcome, and am set down with my father on his throne. How long Tom lay there he knew not. When he came to himself the fire was gone out, his clothes were wet with the chill and drenching dews. But the dread soul-crisis was past, and in the joy that filled him he no longer felt hunger, cold, degradation, disappointment, wretchedness. From his deepest soul he that hour loosed and parted from every hope in life that now is, and offered his own will and unquestioning sacrifice to the infinite. Tom looked up to the silent, ever-living stars, types of the angelic hosts who ever looked down on man, and the solitude of the night rung with the triumphant words of a hymn which he had sung often in happier days, but never with such feeling as now. The earth shall be dissolved like snow, the sun shall cease to shine, but God who called me here below shall be forever mine. And when this mortal life shall fail, and flesh and sense shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining like the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Those who have been familiar with the religious histories of the slave population know that relations like what we have narrated are very common among them. We have heard some from their own lips of a very touching and affecting character. The psychologist tells us of a state in which the affections and images of the mind become so dominant and overpowering that they press into their service the outward imagining. Who shall measure what an all-pervading spirit may do with these capabilities of our mortality, or the ways in which he may encourage the desponding souls of the desolate? If the poor forgotten slave believes that Jesus hath appeared and spoken to him, who shall contradict him? Did he not say his mission in all ages was to bind up the broken-hearted, and set at liberty them that are bruised? When the dim gray of dawn woke the slumberers to go forth to the field, there was among those tattered and shivering wretches one who walked with an exultant tread, for firmer than the ground he trod on was his strong faith in almighty, eternal love. Ah, Legree, try all your forces now! Utmost agony, woe, degradation, want, and loss of all things shall only hasten on the process by which he shall be made a king and a priest unto God. From this time an inviolable sphere of peace encompassed the lowly heart of the oppressed one, an ever-present Saviour hallowed it as a temple. Past now the bleeding of earthly regrets, past its fluctuations of hope and fear and desire, the human will, bent and bleeding and struggling long, was now entirely merged in the divine. So short now seemed the remaining voyage of life, so near, so vivid seemed eternal blessedness, 
that life's uttermost woes fell from him unharming. All noticed the change in his appearance. Cheerfulness and alertness seemed to return to him, and a quietness which no insult or injury could ruffle seemed to possess him. "'What the devil's got into Tom?' Legree said to Sambo. "'A while ago he was all down in the mouth, and now he's pert as a cricket.' "'Don't know, Massa. Gwine to run off, maybe.' "'Like to see him try that,' said Legree, with a savage grin. "'Wouldn't we, Sambo?' "'Guess we would. Ha, ha, ho!' said the sooty gnome, laughing obsequiously. "'Lord, de fun! To see him stickin' in the mud, chasin' and trarin' through the brushes, dogs a-holdin' on to him. Lord, I laugh for to split. Bad our time we cotched Molly. I thought they'd a had her all stripped up before I could get em off. She cares de marks o' dat dar spree yet.' "'I reckon she will to her grave,' said Legree. But now, Sambo, you look sharp. If the nigger's got anything of this sort going, trip him up." "'Massa, let me loan for that,' said Sambo. "'I'll treat a coon. Ho, ho, ho!' This was spoken as Legree was getting on his horse to go to the neighboring town. That night, as he was returning, he thought he would turn his horse and ride round the quarters and see if all was safe. It was a superb moonlight night, and the shadows of the graceful china-trees lay minutely penciled on the turf below and there was that transparent stillness in the air, which it seems almost unholy to disturb. Legree was a little distance from the quarters, when he heard the voice of someone singing. It was not a usual sound there, and he paused to listen. A musical tenor voice sang, "'When I can read my title clear to mansions in the skies, I'll bid farewell to every fear, and wipe my weeping eyes. Should earth against my soul engage, and hellish darts be hurled, then I can smile at Satan's rage, and face a frowning world. Let cares like a wild deluge come, and storms of sorrow fall. May I but safely reach my home, my God, my heaven, my all. On My Journey Home Hymn by Isaac Watts, found in many of the southern country songbooks of the antebellum period. So ho, said Legree to himself, he thinks so, does he? How I hate these cursed Methodist hymns! Here, you nigger! said he, coming suddenly out upon Tom, and raising his riding-whip. How dare you be getting up this year row, when you ought to be in bed? Shut your old black gash, and get along with you! Yes, massa, said Tom, with ready cheerfulness, as he rose to go in. Legree was provoked beyond measure by Tom's evident happiness, and, riding up to him, belabored him over his head and shoulders. There, you dog! he said. See if you'll feel so comfortable after that! But the blows fell now only on the outer man, and not, as before, on the heart. Tom stood perfectly submissive, and yet Legree could not hide from himself that his power over his bond-thrall was somehow gone. And, as Tom disappeared in his cabin, and he wheeled his horse suddenly round, there passed through his mind one of those vivid flashes that often send the lightning of conscience across the dark and wicked soul. He understood full well that it was God who was standing between him and his victim, and he blasphemed him. That submissive and silent man, whom taunts, nor threats, nor stripes, nor cruelties could disturb, roused a voice within him, such as of old his master roused in the demoniac soul, saying, What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to torment us before the time? Tom's whole soul overflowed with compassion and sympathy for the poor wretches by whom he was surrounded. To him it seemed as if his life-sorrows were now over, 
and as if out of that strange treasury of peace and joy with which he had been endowed from above, he longed to pour out something for the relief of their woes. It is true opportunities were scanty, but on the way to the fields and back again, and during the hours of labor, chances fell in his way of extending a helping hand to the weary, the disheartened, and discouraged. The poor, worn-down, brutalized creatures at first could scarce comprehend this, but when it was continued week after week and month after month, it began to awaken long silent chords in their benumbed hearts. Gradually and imperceptibly the strange, silent, patient man, who was ready to bear every one's burden, and sought help from none, who stood aside for all, and came last, and took least, yet was foremost to share his little all with any who needed. The man who, in cold nights, would give up his tattered blanket to add to the comfort of some woman who shivered with sickness, and who filled the baskets of the weaker ones in the field, at the terrible risk of coming short in his own measure, and who, though pursued with unrelenting cruelty by their common tyrant, never joined in uttering a word of reviling or cursing. This man, at last, began to have a strange power over them and when the more pressing season was past, and they were allowed again their Sundays for their own use, many would gather together to hear from him of Jesus. They would gladly have met to hear and pray and sing in some place together, but Legree would not permit it, and more than once broke up such attempts with oaths and brutal execrations, so that the blessed news had to circulate from individual to individual. Yet who can speak the simple joy with which some of those poor outcasts to whom life was a joyless journey to a dark unknown, heard of a compassionate Redeemer and a heavenly home. It is the statement of missionaries that, of all races of the earth, none have received the gospel with such eager docility as the African. The principle of reliance and unquestioning faith, which is its foundation, is more a native element in this race than any other and it has often been found among them that a stray seed of truth, born on some breeze of accident into hearts the most ignorant, has sprung up into fruit, whose abundance has shamed that of higher and more skilful culture. The poor mulatto woman, whose simple faith had been well-nigh crushed and overwhelmed by the avalanche of cruelty and wrong which had fallen upon her, felt her soul raised up by the hymns and passage of Holy Writ, which this lowly missionary breathed into her ear in intervals, as they were going to and returning from work, and even the half-crazed and wandering mind of Cassie was soothed and calmed by his simple and unobtrusive influences. Stung to madness and despair by the crushing agonies of a life, Cassie had often resolved in her soul an hour of retribution, when her hand should avenge on her oppressor all the injustice and cruelty to which she had been witness or which she had in her own person suffered. One night, after all, in Tom's cabin were sunk in sleep, he was suddenly aroused by seeing her face at the hole between the logs that served for a window. She made a silent gesture for him to come out. Tom came out the door. It was between one and two o'clock at night. Broad, calm, still moonlight. Tom remarked, as the light of the moon fell upon Cassie's large black eyes, that there was a wild and peculiar glare in them unlike their wanted fixed despair. "'Come here, Father Tom,' she said, laying her small hand on his wrist, and drawing him forward with a force, as if the hand were of steel. "'Come here. I've news for you.' "'What, Miss Cassie?' said Tom anxiously. "'Tom, wouldn't you like your liberty?' 
"'I shall have it, Missy, in God's time,' said Tom. "'Aye, but you may have it to-night,' said Cassie, with a flash of sudden energy. "'Come on!' Tom hesitated. "'Come!' she said, in a whisper, fixing her black eyes on him. "'Come along. He's asleep, sound. I put enough into his brandy to keep him so. I wish I'd had more. I shouldn't have wanted you. But come, the back door is unlocked. There's an axe there. I put it there. His room door is open. I'll show you the way. I'd have done it myself, only my arms are so weak. Come along.' "'Not for ten thousand worlds, Missy,' said Tom firmly, stopping and holding her back as she was pressing forward. "'But think of all these poor creatures,' said Cassie. "'We might set them all free and go somewhere in the swamps and find an island and live by ourselves. I've heard of its being done. Any life is better than this.' "'No,' said Tom firmly. "'No. Good never comes of wickedness. I'd sooner chop my right hand off.' "'Then I shall do it,' said Cassie, turning. "'Oh, Missy Cassie!' said Tom, throwing himself before her. "'For the dear Lord's sake that died for you, don't sell your precious soul to the devil that way. Nothing but evil will come of it. The Lord hasn't called us to wrath. We must suffer and wait his time.' "'Wait,' said Cassie. "'Haven't I waited? Waited till my head is dizzy and my heart sick. What has he made me suffer? What has he made hundreds of poor creatures suffer?' Isn't he wringing the life-blood out of you? I'm called on. They call me. His time's come, and I'll have his heart's blood." "'No, no, no,' said Tom, holding her small hands, which were clenched with spasmodic violence. "'No, ye poor lost soul, that ye mustn't do. The dear blessed Lord never shed no blood but his own, and that he poured out for us when we was enemies. Lord! help us to follow his steps and love our enemies love said cassie with a fierce glare love such enemies it isn't in flesh and blood no missy it isn't said tom looking up but he gives it to us and that's the victory when we can love and pray over all and through all the battle's past and the victory's come glory be to god and with streaming eyes and choking voice the black man looked up to heaven and this, O Africa, latest called of nations, called to the crown of thorns, the scourge, the bloody sweat, the cross of agony, this is to be thy victory. By this shalt thou reign with Christ, when his kingdom shall come on earth. The deep fervor of Tom's feelings, the softness of his voice, his tears, fell like dew on the wild, unsettled spirit of the poor woman. A softness gathered over the lurid fires of her eye. She looked down, and Tom could feel the relaxing muscles of her hands, as she said, "'Didn't I tell you that evil spirits followed me? Oh, Father Tom, I can't pray. I wish I could. I never have prayed since my children were sold. What you say must be right, I know it must. But when I try to pray, I can only hate and curse. I can't pray.' "'Poor soul,' said Tom compassionately. Satan desires to have ye, and sift ye as wheat. I pray the Lord for ye. Oh, Missy Casey, turn to the dear Lord Jesus. He came to bind up the broken-hearted, and comfort all that mourn." Casey stood still, while large, heavy tears dropped from her downcast eyes. "'Missy Casey,' said Tom, in a hesitating voice, after surveying her in silence, "'if ye only could get away from here, if the thing was possible, I advise ye and Emmeline to do it that is, 
if you could go without blood-guiltiness, not otherwise. Would you try it with us, Father Tom? No, said Tom. Time was when I would, but the Lord's given me a work among these here poor souls, and I'll stay with them and bear my cross with them till the end. It's different with you. It's a snare to you. It's more'n you can stand, and you'd better go if you can. I know no way but through the grave, said Casey. There's no beast or bird but can find a home somewhere. Even the snakes and the alligators have their places to lie down and be quiet. But there's no place for us. Down in the darkest swamps their dogs will hunt us out and find us. Everybody and everything is against us. Even the very beasts side against us. And where shall we go? Tom stood silent. At length he said, him that saved Daniel in the den of lions, that saves the children in the fiery furnace, him that walked on the sea, and bade the winds be still, he's alive yet, and I've faith to believe he can deliver you. Try it, and I'll pray with all my might for you. But what strange law of mind is it that an idea long overlooked and trodden underfoot as a useless stone suddenly sparkles out in new light as a discovered diamond? Casey had often revolved for hours all possible or probable schemes of escape, and dismissed them all as hopeless and impracticable. But at this moment there flashed through her mind a plan, so simple and feasible in all its details, as to awaken an instant hope. "'Father Tom, I'll try it,' she said suddenly. "'Amen,' said Tom. "'The Lord help ye.'" End of chapter 38 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 39. The Stratagem. The way of the wicked is as darkness. He knoweth not at what he stumbleth. Proverbs 4.19. The garret of the house that Legree occupied, like most other garrets, was a great desolate space dusty, hung with cobwebs, and littered with cast-off lumber. The opulent family that had inhabited the house in the days of its splendor had imported a great deal of splendid furniture, some of which they had taken away with them, while some remained standing desolate in moldering, unoccupied rooms, or stored away in this place. One or two immense packing-boxes in which this furniture was brought stood against the sides of the garret. There was a small window there which let in through its dingy, dusty panes, a scanty, uncertain light on the tall, high-backed chairs and dusty tables that had once seen better days. Altogether it was a weird and ghostly place, but ghostly as it was it wanted not in legends among the superstitious negroes to increase its terrors. Some years before a negro woman who had incurred Legree's displeasure was confined there for several weeks. What passed there we do not say. The negroes used to whisper darkly to each other, but it was known that the body of the unfortunate creature was one day taken down from there and buried, and after that it was said that oaths and cursings, and the sound of violent blows, used to ring through that old garret, and mingled with wailings and groans of despair. Once, when Legree chanced to overhear something of this kind, he flew into a violent passion, and swore that the next one that told stories about that garret should have an opportunity of knowing what was there, 
for he would chain them up there for a week. This hint was enough to repress talking, though of course it did not disturb the credit of the story in the least. Gradually the staircase that led to the garret, and even the passageway to the staircase, were avoided by every one in the house, from every one fearing to speak of it, and the legend was gradually falling into desuetude. It had suddenly occurred to Cassie to make use of the superstitious excitability which was so great in Legree for the purpose of her liberation and that of her fellow-sufferer. The sleeping-room of Cassie was directly under the garret. One day, without consulting Legree, she suddenly took it upon her, with some considerable ostentation, to change all the furniture and appurtenances of the room to one at some considerable distance. The under-servants who were called on to effect this movement were running and bustling about with great zeal and confusion when Legree returned from a ride. "'Hello! You, Cass!' said Legree. "'What's in the wind now?' "'Nothing. Only I choose to have another room,' said Cassie doggedly. "'And what for, pray?' said Legree. "'I choose to,' said Cassie. "'The devil you do! And what for?' "'I'd like to get some sleep now and then.' "'Sleep? Well, what hinders your sleeping?' "'I could tell, I suppose, if you want to hear,' said Cassie dryly. "'Speak out, you minx,' said Legree. "'Oh, nothing. I suppose it wouldn't disturb you, only groans and people scuffing and rolling around on the bare floor half the night, from twelve to morning.' "'People up garret?' said Legree, uneasily, but forcing a laugh. <laughs> "'Who are they, Cassie?' Cassie raised her sharp black eyes and looked in the face of Legree, with an expression that went through his bones, as she said, "'To be sure, Simon, who are they? I'd like to have you tell me. You don't know, I suppose.' With an oath Legree struck at her with his riding-whip, but she glided to one side and passed through the door, and, looking back, said, "'If you'll sleep in that room, you'll know all about it. Perhaps you'd better try it.' And then immediately she shut and locked the door. Legree blustered and swore, and threatened to break down the door, but apparently thought better of it, and walked uneasily into the sitting-room. Cassie perceived that her shaft had struck home, and from that hour, with the most exquisite address, she never ceased to continue the train of influences she had begun. In a knot-hole of the garret that had opened, she had inserted the neck of an old bottle, in such a manner that when there was the least wind, most doleful and lugubrious wailing sounds proceeded from it, which in a high wind increased to a perfect shriek, such as to credulous and superstitious ears might easily seem to be that of horror and despair. These sounds were from time to time heard by the servants, and revived in full force the memory of the old ghost-legend. A superstitious creeping horror seemed to fill the house, and though no one dared to breathe it to Legree, he found himself encompassed by it, as by an atmosphere. No one is so thoroughly superstitious as the godless man. The Christian is composed by the belief of a wise, all-ruling father, whose presence fills the void unknown with light and order. But to the man who has dethroned God, the spirit-land is, indeed, in the words of the Hebrew poet, a land of darkness and the shadow of death, without any order, where the light is as darkness. Life and death to him are haunted grounds, filled with goblin forms of vague and shadowy dread. Legree had had the slumbering moral elements in him roused by his encounters with Tom, roused only to be resisted by the determinate force of evil. But still there was a thrill and commotion of the dark inner world, produced by every word or prayer or hymn that reacted in superstitious dread. 
The influence of Cassie over him was of a strange and singular kind. He was her owner, her tyrant and tormentor. She was, as he knew, wholly and without any possibility of help or redress in his hands. And yet, so it is, that the most brutal man cannot live in constant association with a strong female influence, and not be greatly controlled by it. When he first bought her she was, as she said, a woman delicately bred. And then he crushed her, without scruple, beneath the foot of his brutality. But as time and debasing influences and despair hardened womanhood within her, and waked the fires of fiercer passions, she had become in a measure his mistress, and he alternately tyrannized over and dreaded her. This influence had become more harassing and decided, since partial insanity had given a strange, weird, unsettled cast to all her words and language. A night or two after this Legree was sitting in the old sitting-room by the side of a flickering wood fire that threw uncertain glances round the room. It was a stormy, windy night, such as raises whole squadrons of nondescript noises in rickety old houses. Windows were rattling, shutters flapping, and wind carousing, rumbling and tumbling down the chimney, and every once in a while puffing out smoke and ashes, as if a legion of spirits were coming after them. Legree had been casting up accounts and reading newspapers for some hours, while Cassie sat in the corner, sullenly looking into the fire. Legree laid down his paper, and, seeing an old book lying on the table, which he had noticed Cassie reading, the first part of the evening, took it up and began to turn it over. It was one of those collections of stories of bloody murders, ghostly legends, and supernatural visitations, which, coarsely got up and illustrated, have a strange fascination for one who once begins to read them. Legree pooed and pished, but read, turning page after page, till, finally, after reading some way, he threw down the book with an oath. "'You don't believe in ghosts, do you, Cass?' said he, taking the tongs and settling the fire. "'I thought you'd more sense than to let noises scare you.' "'No matter what I believe,' said Cassie sullenly. "'Fellows used to try to frighten me with their yarns at sea,' said Legree. "'Never come it round me that way. I'm too tough for any such trash, tell you.' Cassie sat looking intensely at him in the shadow of the corner. There was that strange light in her eyes that always impressed Legree with uneasiness. "'Them noises was nothing but rats in the wind,' said Legree. "'Rats will make a devil of a noise. I used to hear em sometimes down in the hold of the ship. And wind, for Lord's sake! You can make anything out of wind!' Cassie knew Legree was uneasy under her eyes, and therefore she made no answer, but sat fixing them on him with that strange, unearthly expression as before. "'Come, speak out, woman. Don't you think so?' said Legree. "'Can rats walk downstairs, and come walking through the entry, and open a door when you've locked it, and set a chair against it?' said Cassie. "'And come walk, walk, walking right up to your bed, and—' put out their hand, so?" Cassie kept her glittering eyes fixed on Legree as she spoke, and he stared at her like a man in the nightmare, till, when she finished by laying her hand icy cold on his, he sprung back with an oath. "'Woman, wh wh what do you mean? N nobody did?' "'Oh, no, of course not. Did I say they did?' said Cassie, with a smile of chilling derision. "'But uh, did—have uh, you really seen? Uh, come, Cass, wh what is it now? Speak out!' "'You may sleep there yourself,' said Cassie, "'if you want to know.' "'Did it come from the garret, Cassie?' "'It? What?' said Cassie. 
Why, what you told of. I, I didn't tell you anything, said Cassie, with dogged sullenness. Legree walked up and down the room uneasily. I'll have this yar thing examined. I'll look into it. This very night. I'll take my pistols. Do, said Cassie. Sleep in that room. I'd like to see you doing it. Fire your pistols. Do. Legree stamped his foot and swore violently. Don't swear, said Cassie. Nobody knows who may be hearing you. Hark! What was that? What? said Legree, starting. A heavy old Dutch clock that stood in the corner of the room began and slowly struck twelve. For some reason or other, Legree neither spoke nor moved. A vague horror fell on him, while Cassie, with a keen, sneering glint in her eyes, stood looking at him, counting the strokes. Twelve o'clock. Well, now we'll see," said she, turning and opening the door into the passageway and standing as if listening. Hark! What's that? said she, raising her finger. It's only the wind," said Legree. Don't you hear how cursedly it blows? Simon. Come here," said Cassie, in a whisper, laying her hand on his, and leading him to the foot of the stairs. "'Do you know what that is? Hark!' A wild shriek came pealing down the stairway. It came from the garret. Legree's knees knocked together. His face grew white with fear. "'Hadn't you better get your pistols?' said Cassie, with a sneer that froze Legree's blood. "'It's time this thing was looked into, you know. I'd like to have you go up now. There, at it!' I won't go," said Legree, with an oath. Why not? There ain't any such thing as ghosts, you know. Come," said Cassie, flitting up the winding stairway, laughing and looking back after him. Come on! I believe you are the devil," said Legree. Come back, you hag! Come back, Cass! You shan't go! But Cassie laughed wildly and fled on. He heard her open the entry doors that led to the garret. A wild gust of wind swept down, extinguishing the candle he held in his hand and with it the fearful unearthly screams. They seemed to be shrieked in his very ear. Legree fled frantically into the parlour, whither in a few moments he was followed by Cassie, pale, calm, cold as an avenging spirit, and with that same fearful light in her eye. "'I hope you are satisfied,' said she. "'Blast you, Cass!' said Legree. "'What for?' said Cassie. "'I only went up and shut the doors. What's the matter with that garret, Simon, do you suppose?' said she. "'None of your business,' said Legree. "'Oh, it ain't.' "'Well,' said Cassie, "'at any rate, I'm glad I don't sleep under it.' Anticipating the rising of the wind that very evening, Cassie had been up and opened the garret window. Of course, the moment the doors were opened, the wind had drafted down and extinguished the light. This may serve as a specimen of the game that Cassie played with Legree, until he would sooner have put his head into a lion's mouth than to have explored that garret. Meanwhile, in the night, when everybody else was asleep, Cassie slowly and carefully accumulated there a stock of provisions sufficient to afford subsistence for some time. She transferred, article by article, a greater part of her own and Emmeline's wardrobe. All things being arranged, they only waited a fitting opportunity to put their plan in execution. By cajoling Legree and taking advantage of a good-natured interval, Cassie had got him to take her with him to the neighboring town which was situated directly on the Red River. With a memory sharpened to almost preternatural clearness, she remarked every turn in the road, and formed a mental estimate of the time to be occupied in traversing it. At the time when all was matured for action, our readers may, perhaps, like to look behind the scenes and see the final coup d'état. 
It was now near evening. Legree had been absent on a ride to a neighboring farm. For many days Cassie had been unusually gracious and accommodating in her humors, and Legree and she had been, apparently, on the best of terms. At present we may behold her and Emmeline in the room of the latter, busy in sorting and arranging two small bundles. "'There! These will be large enough,' said Cassie. "'Now put on your bonnet, and let's start. It's just about the right time.' "'Why, they can see us yet,' said Emmeline. "'I mean they shall,' said Cassie coolly. "'Don't you know that they must have their chase after us, at any rate? The way of the thing is to be just this. We will steal out of the back door and run down by the quarters. Sambo or Quimbo will be sure to see us. They will give chase, and we will get into the swamp. Then they can't follow us any further till they go up and give the alarm and turn out the dogs, and so on. And while they are blundering round and tumbling over each other, as they always do, you and I will slip along to the creek that runs back of the house, and wade along in it till we get opposite the back door. That will put the dogs all at fault, for scent won't lie in the water. Every one will run out of the house to look after us, and then we'll whip in at the back door and up into the garret, where I've got a nice bed made up in one of the great boxes. We must stay in that garret a good while, for, I tell you, he will raise heaven and earth after us. He'll muster some of those old overseers on the other plantations, and have a great hunt, and they'll go over every inch of ground in that swamp. He makes it his boast that nobody ever got away from him, so let him hunt at his leisure." "'Cassie, how well you have planned it!' said Emmeline. "'Who ever would have thought of it but you?' There was neither pleasure nor exultation in Cassie's eyes, only a despairing firmness. "'Come,' she said, reaching her hand to Emmeline. The two fugitives glided noiselessly from the house, and flitted through the gathering shadows of evening along by the quarters. The crescent moon, set like a silver signet in the western sky, delayed a little the approach of night. As Cassie expected, when quite near the verge of the swamps that encircled the plantation, they heard a voice calling to them to stop. It was not Sambo, however, but Legree, who was pursuing them with violent execrations. At the sound the feebler spirit of Emmeline gave way, and laying hold of Cassie's arm, she said, "'Oh, Cassie, I'm going to faint!' "'If you do, I'll kill you,' said Cassie, drawing a small, glittering stiletto and flashing it before the eyes of the girl. The diversion accomplished the purpose. Emmeline did not faint, and succeeded in plunging with Cassie into a part of the labyrinth of swamp so deep and dark that it was perfectly hopeless for Legree to think of following them without assistance. "'Well,' he said, chuckling brutally, "'at any rate they've got themselves into a trap now, the baggage. They're safe enough. They shall sweat for it.' "'Hello there, Sambo! Quimbo! All hands!' called Legree, coming to the quarters, when the men and women were just returning from work. "'There's two runaways in the swamps. I'll give five dollars to any nigger as catches em. Turn out the dogs. Turn out Tiger and Fury and the rest.' The sensation produced by this news was immediate. Many of the men sprang forward officiously to offer their services, either from the hope of the reward, or from that cringing subserviency which is one of the most baleful effects of slavery. Some ran one way, and some another. Some were forgetting flambeaux of pine-knots. Some were uncoupling the dogs, whose hoarse savage bay added not a little to the animation of the scene. "'Massa, shall we shoot him, if can't catch him?' said Sambo, to whom his master brought out a rifle. "'You may fire on Cass, if you like. It's time she was gone to the devil, where she belongs. But the gal not,' said Legree. "'And now, boys, be spry and smart. Five dollars for him that gets him and a glass of spirits to every one of you, anyhow. 
the whole band, with the glare of blazing torches, and whoop and shout and savage yell of man and beast, proceeded down to the swamp, followed at some distance by every servant in the house. The establishment was, of a consequence, wholly deserted, when Cassie and Emmeline glided into it the back way. The whooping and shouts of their pursuers were still filling the air, and looking from the sitting-room windows, Cassie and Emmeline could see the troop, with their flambeau, just dispersing themselves along the edge of the swamp. "'See there,' said Emmeline, pointing to Cassie. "'The hunt has begun. Look how those lights dance about. Hark! The dogs! Don't you hear? If we were only there, our chances wouldn't be worth a picayune. Oh, for pity's sake, do let's hide ourselves quick!' "'There's no occasion for hurry,' said Cassie coolly. "'They are all out after the hunt. That's the amusement of the evening. We'll go upstairs by and by.' Meanwhile, said she, deliberately taking a key from the pocket of a coat that Legree had thrown down in his hurry, meanwhile I shall take something to pay our passage. She unlocked the desk, took from it a roll of bills, which she counted over rapidly. Oh, don't let's do that, said Emmeline. Don't, said Cassie. Why not? Would you have us starve in the swamps, or have that that will pay our way to the free states? Money will do anything, girl and as she spoke she put the money in her bosom. "'It would be stealing,' said Emmeline, in a distressed whisper. "'Stealing,' said Cassie, with a scornful laugh. "'They who steal body and soul needn't talk to us. Every one of these bills is stolen. Stolen from poor, starving, sweating creatures, who must go to the devil at last for his profit. Let him talk about stealing. But come, we may as well go up garret. I've got a stock of candles there, and some books to pass away the time.' You may be pretty sure they won't come there to inquire after us. If they do, I'll play ghost for them." When Emmeline reached the garret she found an immense box, in which some heavy pieces of furniture had once been brought, turned on its side, so that the opening faced the wall, or rather the eaves. Cassie lit a small lamp, and, creeping round under the eaves, they established themselves in it. It was spread with a couple of small mattresses and some pillows. A box nearby was plentifully stored with candles, provisions, and all the clothing necessary to their journey, which Cassie had arranged into bundles of an astonishingly small compass. "'There,' said Cassie, as she fixed the lamp into a small hook, which she had driven into the side of the box for that purpose, "'this is to be our home for the present. How do you like it?' "'Are you sure they won't come and search the garret?' "'I'd like to see Simon Legree doing that,' said Cassie. "'No, indeed, he will be too glad to keep away. As to the servants, they would any of them stand and be shot sooner than show their faces here.' Somewhat reassured, Emmeline settled herself back on her pillow. "'What did you mean, Cassie, by saying you would kill me?' she said simply. "'I meant to stop your fainting,' said Cassie. "'And I did do it. And now I tell you, Emmeline, you must make up your mind not to faint. Let what will come. There's no sort of need of it. If I had not stopped you, that wretch might have had his hands on you by now." Emmeline shuddered. The two remained some time in silence. Cassie busied herself with a French book. Emmeline, overcome with the exhaustion, fell into a doze, and slept some time. She was awakened by loud shouts and outcries, the tramp of horses' feet, and the baying of dogs. She started up with a faint shriek. "'Only the hunt coming back,' said Cassie, coolly. "'Never fear. Look out at this knot-hole. Don't you see him all down there? Simon has to give up for this night. Look how muddy his horse is, flouncing about in the swamp. The dogs, too, look rather crestfallen. 
"'Ah, my good sir, you'll have to try the race again and again. The game isn't there.' "'Oh, don't speak a word,' said Emmeline. "'What if they should hear you?' "'If they do hear anything, it will make them very particular to keep away,' said Cassie. "'No danger. We may make any noise we please, and it will only add to the effect.' At length the stillness of midnight settled down over the house. Legree, cursing his ill-luck and vowing dire vengeance on the morrow, went to bed. End of chapter 39This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 40 The Martyr. Deem not the just by heaven forgot, though life its common gifts deny, though with a crushed and bleeding heart, as spurned of man he goes to die. For God hath marked each sorrowing day, And numbered every bitter tear, And heaven's long years of bliss shall pay, For all his children suffer here. Bryant. Note. This poem does not appear in the collected works of William Cullen Bryant, nor in the collected poems of his brother John Howard Bryant. It was probably copied from a newspaper or magazine. The longest way must have its close the gloomiest night will wear on to a morning. An eternal, inexorable lapse of moments is ever hurrying the day of the evil to an eternal night, and the night of the just to an eternal day. We have walked with our humble friend thus far in the valley of slavery, first through flowery fields of ease and indulgence, then through heart-breaking separations from all that man holds dear. Again we have waited with him in a sunny island, where generous hands concealed his chains with flowers, and lastly we have followed him when the last ray of earthly hope went out in night, and seen how, in the blackness of earthly darkness, the firmament of the unseen has blazed with stars of new and significant luster. The morning star now stands over the tops of the mountains, and gales and breezes not of earth show that the gates of day are unclosing. The escape of Cassie and Emmeline irritated the before surly temper of Legree to the last degree, and his fury, as was to be expected, fell upon the defenceless head of Tom. When he hurriedly announced the tidings among his hands, there was a sudden light in Tom's eye, a sudden upraising of his hands, that did not escape him. He saw that he did not join the muster of the pursuers. He thought of forcing him to do it, but, having had of old experience of his inflexibility when commanded to take part in any deed of inhumanity, he would not, in his hurry, stop to enter into any conflict with him. Tom, therefore, remained behind, with a few who had learned of him to pray, and offered up prayers for the escape of the fugitives. When Legree returned, baffled and disappointed, all the long-working hatred of his soul towards his slave began to gather in a deadly and desperate form. Had not this man braved him, steadily, powerfully, resistlessly, ever since he bought him? Was there not a spirit in him which, silent as it was, burned on him like the fires of perdition? "'I hate him,' said Legree that night, as he sat up in his bed. "'I hate him. And isn't he mine? Can't I do what I like with him? Who's to hinder, I wonder?' And Legree clenched his fist and shook it, as if he had something in his hands that he could rend in pieces. 
But then Tom was a faithful, valuable servant, and although Legree hated him the more for that, yet the consideration was still somewhat of a restraint to him. The next morning he determined to say nothing, as yet, to assemble a party from some neighboring plantations, with dogs and guns, to surround the swamp, and go about the hunt systematically. If it succeeded, well and good. If not, he would summon Tom before him, and, his teeth clenched and his blood boiled, then he would break the fellow down, or—there was a dire inward whisper to which his soul assented. Ye say that the interest of the master is a sufficient safeguard for the slave. In the fury of man's mad will, he will wittingly, and with open eye, sell his own soul to the devil to gain his ends. And will he be more careful of his neighbor's body? Well, said Cassie the next day from the garret, as she reconnoitred through the knot-hole, the hunt's going to begin again to-day. Three or four mounted horsemen were curvetting about on the space in front of the house, and one or two leashes of strange dogs were struggling with the negroes who held them, baying and barking at each other. The men are, two of them, overseers of plantations in the vicinity, and others were some of Legree's associates at the tavern bar of a neighboring city, who had come for the interest of the sport. A more hard-favored set perhaps could not be imagined. Legree was serving brandy, profusely, round among them, as also among the negroes, who had been detailed from the various plantations for this service. For it was an object to make every service of this kind among the negroes as much of a holiday as possible. Cassie placed her ear at the knot-hole, and, as the morning air blew directly towards the house, she could overhear a good deal of the conversation. A grave sneer overcast the dark, severe gravity of her face as she listened, and heard them divide out the ground, discuss the rival merits of the dogs, give orders about firing, and the treatment of each in case of capture. Cassie drew back, and clasping her hands looked upward, and said, "'Oh, great, almighty God, we are all sinners, but what have we done, more than all the rest of the world, that we should be treated so?' There was a terrible earnestness in her face and voice as she spoke. "'If it wasn't for you, child,' she said, looking at Emmeline, "'I'd go out to them, and I'd thank any one of them that would shoot me down. For what use will freedom be to me? Can it give me back my children, or make me what I used to be?' Emmeline, in her childlike simplicity, was half afraid of the dark moods of Cassie. She looked perplexed, but made no answer. She only took her hand with a gentle caressing movement. "'Don't,' said Cassie, trying to draw it away. "'You'll get me to loving you, and I never mean to love anything again.' "'Poor Cassie,' said Emmeline, "'don't feel so. If the Lord gives us liberty, perhaps he'll give you back your daughter. At any rate, I'll be like a daughter to you. I know I'll never see my poor old mother again. I shall love you, Cassie, whether you love me or not.' The gentle, childlike spirit conquered. Cassie sat down by her, put her arm round her neck, stroked her soft brown hair, and Emmeline then wondered at the beauty of her magnificent eyes, now soft with tears. "'Oh, Em,' said Cassie, "'I've hungered for my children, and thirsted for them, and my eyes fail with longing for them. Here, here,' she said, striking her breast, "'it's all desolate, all empty.' If God would give me back my children, then I could pray. You must trust him, Cassie," said Emmeline. He is our father. 
"'His wrath is upon us,' said Cassie. "'He has turned away in anger.' "'No, Cassie, he will be good to us. Let us hope in him,' said Emmeline. "'I always have had hope.' The hunt was long, animated and thorough, but unsuccessful. And, with grave, ironic exultation, Cassie looked down on Legree, as, weary and dispirited, he alighted from his horse. "'Now, Quimbo,' said Legree, as he stretched himself down in the sitting-room, "'you just go and walk that tom up here right away. The old cuss is at the bottom of this yar old matter, and I'll have it out of his old black hide, or I'll know the reason why.' Sambo and Quimbo, both, though hating each other, were joined in one mind by a no less cordial hatred of Tom. Legree had told them, at first, that he had bought him for a general overseer in his absence, and this had begun an ill-will on their part, which had increased in their debased and servile natures, as they saw him becoming obnoxious to their master's displeasure. Quimbo, therefore, departed with a will to execute his orders. Tom heard the message with a forewarning heart, for he knew all the plan of the fugitive's escape, and the place of their present concealment. He knew the deadly character of the man he had to deal with, and his despotic power. But he felt strong in God to meet death, rather than betray the helpless. He sat his basket down by the row, and, looking up, said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth, and then quietly yielded himself to the rough, brutal grasp with which Quimbo seized him. Aye, aye, said the giant, as he dragged him along. He'll catch it now. I'll bound Massa's backs up high. No sneakin' out now. Tell you, he'll get it, no mistake. See how you'll look now, helpin' Massa's niggers to run away. See what you'll get. The savage words, none of them reached that ear. A higher voice there was saying, Fear not them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Nerve and bone of that poor man's body vibrated to those words, as if touched by the finger of God, and he felt the strength of a thousand souls in one. As he passed along, the trees and bushes, the huts of his servitude, the whole scene of his degradation seemed to whirl by him as the landscape by the rushing ear. His soul throbbed, his home was in sight, and the hour of release seemed at hand. "'Well, Tom,' said Legree, walking up and seizing him grimly by the collar of his coat, and speaking through his teeth in a paroxysm of determined rage, "'do you know I've made up my mind to kill you?' "'It's very likely, Massa,' said Tom calmly. "'I have,' said Legree, with a grim and terrible calmness, "'done just that thing, Tom, unless you tell me what you know about these Argyles.' Tom stood silent. "'Do you hear?' said Legree, stamping, with a roar like that of an incensed lion. "'Speak!' "'I hain't got nothing to tell, Massa,' said Tom, with a slow, firm, deliberate utterance. "'Do you dare to tell me, you old black Christian, you don't know?' said Legree. Tom was silent. "'Speak!' thundered Legree, striking him furiously. "'Do you know anything?' "'I know, Massa, but I can't tell anything. I can die.' Legree drew in a long breath, and, suppressing his rage, took Tom by the arm, and, approaching his face almost to his, said in a terrible voice, "'Hark ye, Tom! Ye think, cause I've let you off before, I don't mean what I say. But this time I've made up my mind, and counted the cost. You've always stood it out agin me. Now I'll conquer ye, or kill ye. One or t'other. 
I'll count every drop of blood there is in you, and take em one by one, till ye give up." Tom looked up to his master, and answered, "'Massa, if you was sick, or in trouble, or dying, and I could save ye, I'd give ye my heart's blood. And if taking every drop of blood in this poor old body would save your precious soul, I'd give em freely, as the Lord gave his for me. Oh, massa, don't bring this great sin on your soul. It will hurt you more than twill me. Do the worst you can. My troubles be over soon. But if you don't repent, yours won't never end." Like a strange snatch of heavenly music heard in the lull of a tempest, this burst of feeling made a moment's blank pause. Legree stood aghast, and looked at Tom, and there was such a silence that the tick of the old clock could be heard, measuring, with silent touch, the last moments of mercy and probation to that hardened heart. It was but a moment. There was one hesitating pause, one irresolute, relenting thrill, and the spirit of evil came back with sevenfold vehemence, and Legree, foaming with rage, smote his victim to the ground. Scenes of blood and cruelty are shocking to our ear and heart. What man has nerve to do, man has not nerve to hear. What brother man and brother Christian must suffer cannot be told us, even in our secret chamber, it so harrows the soul. And yet, O oh my country, these things are done under the shadow of thy laws. O oh Christ, thy church sees them almost in silence. But of old there was one whose suffering changed an instrument of torture, degradation, and shame into a symbol of glory, honor, and immortal life. And where his spirit is, neither degrading stripes, nor blood, nor insults, can make the Christian's last struggle less than glorious. Was he alone that long night, whose brave, loving spirit was bearing up in that old shed against buffeting and brutal stripes? Nay, there stood by him one, seen by him alone, like unto the Son of God. The tempter stood by him, too, blinded by furious despotic will, every moment pressing him to shun that agony by the betrayal of the innocent. But the brave, true heart was firm on the eternal rock. Like his master, he knew that, if he saved others, himself he could not save, nor could utmost extremity wring from him words save of prayers and holy trust. "'He's most gone, Massa,' said Sambo, touched in spite of himself by the patience of his victim. "'Pay away till he gives up!' "'Give it to him! Give it to him!' shouted Legree. "'I'll take every drop of blood he has, unless he confesses!' Tom opened his eyes, and looked upon his master. "'Ye poor, miserable critter,' he said, "'there ain't no more ye can do. I forgive ye with all my soul!' And he fainted entirely away. "'I believe, my soul, he's done for, finally,' said Legree, stepping forward to look at him. Yes, he is. Well, his mouth's shut up at last. That's one comfort." Yes, Legree. But who shall shut up that voice in thy soul, that soul past repentance, past prayer, past hope, in whom the fire that never shall be quenched is already burning? Yet Tom was not quite gone. 
His wondrous words and pious prayers had struck upon the hearts of the imbruted blacks, who had been the instruments of cruelty upon him, and the instant Legree withdrew, they took him down, and in their ignorance sought to call him back to life, as if that were any favor to him. "'Sartin we's been doin' a dreadful wicked thing,' said Sambo. "'Hopes Masser'll have to count for it, not we.' They washed his wounds. They provided a rude bed of some refuse cotton for him to lie down on, and one of them, stealing up to the house, begged a drink of brandy of Legree, pretending that he was tired, and wanted it for himself. He brought it back and poured it down Tom's throat. "'Oh, Tom,' said Quimbo, "'we's been awful wicked to you.' "'I forgive ye with all my heart,' said Tom faintly. "'Oh, Tom, do tell us who is Jesus, anyhow.' said Sambo. "'Jesus, that's been a-standin' by you so all this night, who is he?' The word roused the failing, fainting spirit. He poured forth a few energetic sentences of that wondrous one, his life, his death, his everlasting presence and power to save. They wept, both the two savage men. "'Why didn't I never hear this before?' said Sambo. "'But I do believe. I can't help it. "'Lord Jesus, have mercy on us!' "'Poor critters,' said Tom. "'I'd be willing to buy all I have, "'if it'll only bring you to Christ. "'Oh, Lord, give me these two more souls, I pray.' That prayer was answered. End of chapter 40This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 41 The Young Master. Two days after, a young man drove a light wagon up through the avenue of china trees, and, throwing the reins hastily on the horse's neck, sprang out and inquired for the owner of the place. It was George Shelby. And to show how he came to be there, we must go back in our story. The letter of Miss Ophelia to Mrs. Shelby had, by some unfortunate accident, been detained for a month or two at some remote post-office, before it reached its destination. And, of course, before it was received, Tom was already lost to view among the distant swamps of the Red River. Mrs. Shelby read the intelligence with the deepest concern but any immediate action upon it was an impossibility. She was then in attendance on the sick-bed of her husband, who lay delirious in the crisis of a fever. Master George Shelby, who in the interval had changed from a boy to a tall young man, was her constant and faithful assistant, and her only reliance in superintending his father's affairs. Miss Ophelia had taken the precaution to send them the name of the lawyer who did business for the St. Clairs and the most that, in the emergency, could be done, was to address a letter of inquiry to him. The sudden death of Mr. Shelby, a few days after, brought, of course, an absorbing pressure of other interests for a season. Mr. Shelby showed his confidence in his wife's ability by appointing her sole executrix upon his estates, and thus immediately a large and complicated amount of business was brought upon her hands. Mrs. Shelby, with characteristic energy, applied herself to the work of straightening the entangled web of affairs, 
and she and George were for some time occupied with collecting and examining accounts, selling property and settling debts. For Mrs. Shelby was determined that everything should be brought into tangible and recognizable shape, let the consequences to her prove what they might. In the meantime they received a letter from the lawyer to whom Miss Ophelia had referred them, saying that he knew nothing of the matter, that the man was sold at a public auction, and that, beyond receiving the money, he knew nothing of the matter. Neither George nor Mrs. Shelby could be easy at this result, and, accordingly, some six months later, the latter, having business for his mother down the river, resolved to visit New Orleans in person, and push his inquiries in hopes of discovering Tom's whereabouts and restoring him. After some months of unsuccessful search, by the merest accident George fell in with a man in New Orleans who happened to be possessed of the desired information, and with his money in his pocket our hero took steamboat for Red River, resolving to find out and repurchase his old friend. He was soon introduced into the house, where he found Legree in the sitting-room. Legree received the stranger with a kind of surly hospitality. "'I understand,' said the young man, "'that you bought in New Orleans a boy named Tom. He used to be on my father's place, and I came to see if I couldn't buy him back.' Legree's brow grew dark, and he broke out passionately. "'Yes, I did buy such a fellow, and a hell of a bargain I had of it, too.' the most rebellious, saucy, impudent dog, set up my niggers to run away, got off two gals, worth eight hundred or thousand apiece. He owned to that, and when I bid him tell me where they was, he up and said he knew, but he wouldn't tell, and stood to it. Though I gave him the cussedest flogging I ever gave a nigger yet. I believe he's trying to die, but I don't know as he'll make it out. "'Where is he?' said George impetuously. "'Let me see him.' The cheeks of the young man were crimson, and his eyes flashed fire, but he prudently said nothing as yet. "'He's in that our shed,' said a little fellow, who stood holding George's horse. Legree kicked the boy and swore at him, but George, without saying another word, turned and strode to the spot. Tom had been lying two days since the fatal night, not suffering, for every nerve of suffering was blunted and destroyed. He lay, for the most part, in a quiet stupor, for the laws of a powerful and well-knit frame would not at once release the imprisoned spirit. By stealth there had been there, in the darkness of the night, poor desolated creatures who stole from their scanty hour's rest, that they might repay to him some of those ministrations of love in which he had always been so abundant. Truly those poor disciples had little to give, only the cup of cold water, but it was given with full hearts. Tears had fallen on that honest, insensible face tears of late repentance in the poor, ignorant heathen whom his dying love and patience had awakened to repentance, and bitter prayers breathed over him to a late-found Saviour, of whom they scarce knew more than the name, but whom the yearning, ignorant heart of man never implores in vain. Cassie, who had glided out of her place of concealment, and by overhearing learned the sacrifice that had been made for her and Emmeline, had been there the night before defying the danger of detection, and moved by the last few words which the affectionate soul had yet strength to breathe, the long winter of despair, the ice of years, had given way, and the dark despairing woman had wept and prayed. When George entered the shed he felt his head giddy and his heart sick. "'Is it possible? Is it possible?' said he, kneeling down by him. "'Uncle Tom, my poor, poor old friend!' Something in the voice penetrated to the ear of the dying. He moved his head gently, smiled, and said, 
Jesus can make a dying bed feel soft as down pillows are. Tears which did honor to his manly heart fell from the young man's eyes as he bent over his poor friend. Oh, dear Uncle Tom, do wake, do speak once more. Look up. Here's Massa George, your own little Massa George. Don't you know me? Massa George, said Tom, opening his eyes and speaking in a feeble voice. Massa George, he looked bewildered. Slowly the idea seemed to fill his soul, and the vacant eye became fixed and brightened. The whole face lighted up, the hard hands clasped, and tears ran down the cheeks. Bless the Lord! It is! It is! It's all I wanted! They haven't forgot me! It warms my soul! It does my heart good! Now I shall die content! Bless the Lord on my soul! You shan't die! You mustn't die, nor think of it! I've come to buy you and take you home!" said George, with impetuous vehemence. Oh, Massa George, you're too late. The Lord's bought me, and is going to take me home, and I long to go. Heaven is better than Kentuck. Oh, don't die! It'll kill me! It'll break my heart to think what you've suffered, and lying in this old shed here. Poor, poor fellow!" Don't call me poor fellow, said Tom solemnly. I have been poor fellow, but that's all past and gone now. I'm right in the door, going into glory. Oh, Massa George, heaven has come. I've got the glory. The Lord Jesus has given it to me. Glory be to his name." George was awestruck at the force, the vehemence, the power with which these broken sentences were uttered. He sat gazing in silence. Tom grasped his hand and continued, "'Ye mustn't now tell Chloe, poor soul, how ye found me. "'Twould be so dreadful to her. "'Only tell her ye found me going into glory, "'and that I couldn't stay for no one. "'And tell her the Lord stood by me everywhere and allus, "'and made everything light and easy. "'And, oh, the poor children and the baby! "'My old heart's been most broke for them time and again. "'Tell them all to follow me. Follow me. "'Give my love to Massa and dear good missus and everybody in the place. You don't know. Pears like I loves em all. I loves every creature everywhere. It's nothing but love. Oh, Massa George, what a thing tis to be a Christian!" At this moment Legree sauntered up to the door of the shed, looked in with a dogged air of affected carelessness, and turned away. "'The old Satan!' said George, in his indignation. It's a comfort to think the devil will pay him for this some of these days." "'Oh, don't! Oh, ye mustn't!' said Tom, grasping his hand. "'He's a poor, miserable critter. It's awful to think on it. Oh, if he only could repent, the Lord would forgive him now. But I'm afeard he never will.' "'I hope he won't,' said George. I never want to see him in heaven." "'Hush, Master George. It worries me. Don't feel so. He ain't done me no real harm, only opened the gate of the kingdom for me, that's all." At this moment the sudden flush of strength which the joy of meeting his young master had infused into the dying man gave way. A sudden sinking fell upon him. He closed his eyes, 
and that mysterious and sublime change passed over his face that told the approach of other worlds. He began to draw his breath with long, deep inspirations, and his broad chest rose and fell heavily. The expression of his face was that of a conqueror. Who, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? he said, in a voice that contended with mortal weakness, and with a smile he fell asleep. George sat fixed with solemn awe. It seemed to him that the place was holy, and as he closed the lifeless eyes and rose up from the dead, only one thought possessed him, that expressed by his simple old friend. What a thing it is to be a Christian! He turned. Legree was standing sullenly behind him. Something in that dying scene had checked the natural fierceness of youthful passion. The presence of the man was simply loathsome to George, and he felt only an impulse to get away from him, with as few words as possible. Fixing his keen dark eyes on Legree, he simply said, pointing to the dead, "'You have got all you ever can of him. What shall I pay you for the body? I will take it away, and bury it decently.' "'I don't sell dead niggers,' said Legree doggedly. "'You are welcome to bury him where and when you like.' "'Boys,' said George, in an authoritative tone to two or three negroes who were looking at the body, "'help me lift him up and carry him to my wagon, and get me a spade.' One of them ran for a spade, the other two assisted George to carry the body to the wagon. George neither spoke to nor looked at Legree, who did not countermand his orders, but stood whistling with an air of forced unconcern. He sulkily followed them to where the wagon stood at the door. George spread his cloak in the wagon and had the body carefully disposed of in it, moving the seat so as to give it room. Then he turned, fixed his eyes on Legree, and said with forced composure, "'I have not, as yet, said to you what I think of this most atrocious affair. This is not the time and place. But, sir, this innocent blood shall have justice. I will proclaim this murder. I will go to the very first magistrate and expose you.' "'Do!' said Legree, snapping his fingers scornfully. "'I'd like to see you doing it. Where are you going to get witnesses? How are you going to prove it? Come, now!' George saw at once the force of this defiance. There was not a white person on the place, and in all southern courts the testimony of colored blood is nothing. He felt at that moment as if he could have rent the heavens with his heart's indignant cry for justice, but in vain. "'After all, what a fuss for a dead nigger!' said Legree. The word was as a spark to a powder magazine. Prudence was never a cardinal virtue of the Kentucky boy. George turned, and with one indignant blow knocked Legree flat upon his face, and as he stood over him, blazing with wrath and defiance, he would have formed no bad personification of his great namesake triumphing over the dragon. Some men, however, are decidedly bettered by being knocked down. If a man lays them fairly flat in the dust, they seem immediately to conceive a respect for him, and Legree was one of this sort. As he rose, therefore, and brushed the dust from his clothes, he eyed the slowly retreating wagon with some evident consideration, nor did he open his mouth till it was out of sight. Beyond the boundaries of the plantation George had noticed a dry, sandy knoll shaded by a few trees. There they made the grave. "'Shall we take off the cloak, massa?' 
said the negroes, when the grave was ready. No. No. Bury it with him. It's all I can give you now, poor Tom, and you shall have it. They laid him in it, and the men shoveled away silently. They banked it up and laid green turf over it. You may go, boys, said George, slipping a quarter into the hand of each. They lingered about, however. If young Massa would please buy us, said one. We'd serve him so faithful, said the other. Hard times here, Massa, said the first. Do, Massa, buy us, please. I can't. I, I can't, said George, with difficulty, motioning them off. It's I impossible. The poor fellows looked dejected and walked off in silence. "'Witness, eternal God,' said George, kneeling on the grave of his poor friend, "'oh, witness that from this hour I will do what one man can to drive out this curse of slavery from my land. There is no monument to mark the last resting-place of our friend. He needs none. His Lord knows where he lies, and will raise him up immortal to appear with him when he shall appear in his glory. Pity him not. Such a life and death is not for pity. Not in the riches of omnipotence is the chief glory of God. But in self-denying, suffering love. And blessed are the men whom he calls to fellowship with him, bearing their cross after him with patience. Of such it is written, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. End of chapter 41This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe Chapter 42 An Authentic Ghost Story for some remarkable reason, ghostly legends were uncommonly rife about this time among the servants on Legree's place. It was whisperingly asserted that footsteps, in the dead of night, had been heard descending the garret stairs and patrolling the house. In vain the doors of the upper entry had been locked. The ghost either carried a duplicate key in its pocket, or availed itself of a ghost's immemorial privilege of coming through the keyhole, and promenaded as before with a freedom that was alarming. Authorities were somewhat divided as to the outward form of the spirit, owing to a custom quite prevalent among negroes, and, for aught we know, among whites, too, of invariably shutting the eyes and covering up heads under blankets, petticoats, or whatever else might come in use for a shelter on these occasions. Of course, as everybody knows, when the bodily eyes are thus out of the lists, the spiritual eyes are uncommonly vivacious and perspicuous, and therefore there were abundance of full-length portraits of the ghost, abundantly sworn and testified to, which, as if often the case with portraits, agreed with each other in no particular, except the common family peculiarity of the ghost tribe, the wearing of a white sheet. The poor souls were not versed in ancient history, and did not know that Shakespeare had authenticated this costume by telling how— the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the streets of Rome. Hamlet, Act One, Scene One, Lines one fifteen, one sixteen, And, therefore, their all hitting upon this is a striking fact in pneumatology, which we recommend to the attention of spiritual media generally. Be it as it may, we have private reasons for knowing that a tall figure in a white sheet did walk, at the most approved ghostly hours, around the Legree premises 
pass out the doors, glide about the house, disappear at intervals, and, reappearing, pass up the silent stairway, into that fatal garret, and that in the morning the entry doors were all found shut and locked as firm as ever. Legree could not help overhearing this whispering, and it was all the more exciting to him from the pains that were taken to conceal it from him. He drank more brandy than usual, held up his head briskly, and swore louder than ever in the daytime. But he had bad dreams, and the visions of his head on his bed were anything but agreeable. The night after Tom's body had been carried away, he rode to the next town for a carouse, and had a high one, got home late and tired, locked his door, took out the key, and went to bed. After all, let a man take what pains he may to hush it down, a human soul is an awful ghostly unquiet possession for a bad man to have. Who knows the meats and bounds of it? Who knows all its awful perhapses, those shudderings and tremblings, which it can no more live down than it can outlive its own eternity? What a fool is he who locks his door to keep out spirits, who has in his own bosom a spirit he dares not meet alone? whose voice, smothered far down, and piled over with mountains of earthliness, is yet like the forewarning trumpet of doom. But Legree locked his door, and set a chair against it. He set a night-lamp at the head of his bed, and put his pistols there. He examined the catches and fastenings of the windows, and then swore he didn't care for the devil and all his angels, and went to sleep. Well, he slept, for he was tired, slept soundly. But, finally, there came over his sleep a shadow, a horror, an apprehension of something dreadful hanging over him. It was his mother's shroud, he thought. But Cassie had it, holding it up and showing it to him. He heard a confused noise of screams and groanings, and, with it all, he knew he was asleep, and he struggled to wake himself. He was half awake. He was sure something was coming into his room. He knew the door was opening, but he could not stir hand or foot. At last he turned with a start. The door was open, and he saw a hand putting out his light. It was a cloudy, misty moonlight, and there he saw it, something white gliding in. He heard the still rustle of its ghostly garments. It stood still by his bed. A cold hand touched his. A voice said three times, in low, fearful whispers, and while he lay sweating with terror, he knew not when or how the thing was gone. He sprang out of bed and pulled at the door. It was shut and locked, and the man fell down in a swoon. After this Legree became a harder drinker than ever before. He no longer drank cautiously, prudently, but imprudently and recklessly. There were reports around the country, soon after, that he was sick and dying. Excess had brought on that frightful disease that seems to throw the lurid shadows of a coming retribution back into the present life. None could bear the horrors of that sick-room, when he raved and screamed, and spoke of sights which almost stopped the blood of those who heard him, and at his dying bed stood a stern, white, inexorable figure, saying, Come, come, come. By a singular coincidence, on the very night that this vision appeared to Legree, the house-door was found open in the morning, and some of the negroes had seen two white figures gliding down the avenue towards the high-road. It was near sunrise when Cassie and Emmeline paused, for a moment, in a little knot of trees near the town. Cassie was dressed after the manner of the Creole Spanish ladies, wholly in black. A small black bonnet on her head, covered by a veil thick with embroidery, concealed her face. 
It had been agreed that, in their escape, she was to personate the character of a Creole lady, and Emmeline that of her servant. Brought up from early life in connection with the highest society, the language, movements, and air of Cassie were all in agreement with this idea, and she had still enough remaining with her of a once splendid wardrobe, and sets of jewels, to enable her to personate the thing to advantage. She stopped in the outskirts of the town, where she had noticed trunks for sale, and purchased a handsome one. This she requested the man to send along with her. And accordingly, thus escorted by a boy wheeling her trunk, and Emmeline behind her, carrying her carpet-bag and sundry bundles, she made her appearance at the small tavern, like a lady of consideration. The first person that struck her after her arrival was George Shelby, who was staying there, awaiting the next boat. Cassie had remarked the young man from her loophole in the garret, and seen him bear away the body of Tom, and observed with secret exultation his rencontre with Legree. Subsequently she had gathered, from the conversations she had overheard among the negroes, as she glided about in her ghostly disguise after nightfall, who he was, and in what relation he stood to Tom. She, therefore, felt an immediate accession of confidence when she found that he was, like herself, awaiting the next boat. Cassie's air and manner, address, and evident command of money prevented any rising disposition to suspicion in the hotel. People never inquire too closely into those who are fair, on the main point, of paying well, a thing which Cassie had foreseen when she provided herself with money. In the edge of the evening a boat was heard coming along, and George Shelby handed Cassie aboard, with the politeness which comes naturally to every Kentuckian, and exerted himself to provide her with a good stateroom. Cassie kept her room and bed on pretext of illness during the whole time they were on Red River, and was waited on with obsequious devotion by her attendant. When they arrived at the Mississippi River, George, having learned that the course of the strange lady was upward, like his own, proposed to take a stateroom for her on the same boat with himself, good-naturedly compassionating her feeble health, and desirous to do what he could to assist her. Behold, therefore, the whole party safely transferred to the good steamer Cincinnati, and sweeping up the river under a powerful head of steam. Cassie's health was much better. She sat upon the guards, came to the table, and was remarked upon in the boat as a lady that must have been very handsome. From the moment that George got the first glimpse of her face, he was troubled with one of those fleeting and indefinite likenesses which almost everybody can remember, and has been at times perplexed with. He could not keep himself from looking at her and watching her perpetually. At table, or sitting at her stateroom door, still she would encounter the young man's eyes fixed on her, and politely withdrawn when she showed by her countenance that she was sensible to the observation. Cassie became uneasy. She began to think that he suspected something and finally resolved to throw herself entirely on his generosity, and entrusted him with her whole history. George was heartily disposed to sympathize with any one who had escaped from Legree's plantation, a place that he could not remember or speak of with patience, and, with the courageous disregard of consequences which is characteristic of his age and state, he assured her that he would do all in his power to protect and bring them through. The next stateroom to Cassie's was occupied by a French lady named De Thau who was accompanied by a fine little daughter, a child of some twelve summers. This lady, having gathered from George's conversation that he was from Kentucky, seemed evidently disposed to cultivate his acquaintance, in which design she was seconded by the graces of her little girl, 
who was about as pretty a plaything as ever diverted the weariness of a fortnight's trip on a steamboat. George's chair was often placed at her stateroom door, and Cassie, as she sat upon the guards, could hear their conversation. Madame de Thol was very minute in her inquiries as to Kentucky, where she said she had resided in a former period of her life. George discovered to his surprise that her former residence must have been in his own vicinity, and her inquiries showed a knowledge of people and things in his vicinity that was perfectly surprising to him. "'Do you know,' said Madame de Thau to him one day, "'of any man in your neighborhood of the name of Harris?' "'There is an old fellow of that name lives not far from my father's place,' said George. "'We never have had much intercourse with him, though.' "'He is a large slave-owner, I believe,' said Madame de Thau, with a manner which seemed to betray more interest than she was exactly willing to show. "'He is,' said George, looking rather surprised at her manner. "'Did you ever know of his having—perhaps you may have heard of his having a mulatto boy named George?' "'Oh, certainly. George Harris. I know him well. He married a servant of my mother's, but has escaped now to Canada.' "'He has?' said Madame de Thau quickly. "'Thank God!' George looked a surprised inquiry, but said nothing. Madame de Thau leaned her head on her hand and burst into tears. "'He is my brother,' she said. "'Madame,' said George, with a strong accent of surprise. "'Yes,' said Madame de Thau, lifting her head proudly and wiping her tears. "'Mr. Shelby, George Harris is my brother.' "'I am perfectly astonished,' said George, pushing back his chair a pace or two, and looking at Madame de Thau. "'I was sold to the South when he was a boy,' said she. "'I was bought by a good and generous man. He took me with him to the West Indies, set me free, and married me. It is but lately that he died, and I was going up to Kentucky to see if I could find and redeem my brother.' "'I heard him speak of a sister Emily that was sold South,' said George. "'Yes, indeed, I am the one,' said Madame de Thau. "'Tell me what sort of a—' "'A very fine young man,' said George, notwithstanding the curse of slavery that lay on him. He sustained a first-rate character, both for intelligence and principle. "'I know, you see,' he said, "'because he married in our family.' "'What sort of a girl?' said Madame de Thau eagerly. "'A treasure,' said George. "'A beautiful, intelligent, amiable girl, very pious.' My mother had brought her up, and trained her as carefully, almost, as a daughter. She could read and write, embroider and sew beautifully, and was a beautiful singer. "'Was she born in your house?' said Madame de Thau. "'No. Father bought her once in one of his trips to New Orleans, and brought her up as a present to mother. She was about eight or nine years old then. Father would never tell mother what he gave for her. But the other day, in looking over his old papers, we came across the bill of sale.' He paid an extravagant sum for her, to be sure, I suppose on account of her extraordinary beauty. George sat with his back to Cassie, and did not see the absorbed expression of her countenance as he was giving these details. At this point in the story she touched his arm, and with a face perfectly white with interest, said, "'Do you know the names of the people he bought her of?' "'A man of the name of Simmons, I think.' was the principal in the transaction. At least I think that was the name on the bill of sale. "'Oh, my God!' said Cassie, and fell insensible on the floor of the cabin. George was wide awake now, and so was Madame de Thau, though neither of them could conjecture what was the cause of Cassie's fainting. 
Still they made all the tumult, which is proper in such cases. George upsetting a wash-pitcher, and breaking two tumblers, in the warmth of his humanity, and various ladies in the cabin, hearing that somebody had fainted, crowded the state-room door, and kept out all the air they possibly could, so that, on the whole, everything was done that could be expected. Poor Cassie, when she recovered, turned her face to the wall, and wept and sobbed like a child. Perhaps, mother, you can tell what she was thinking of. Perhaps you cannot. But she felt as sure in that hour that God had had mercy on her, and that she should see her daughter as she did months afterwards, when, but we anticipate. End of chapter 42This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 43. Results. The rest of our story is soon told. George Shelby, interested, as any other young man might be, by the romance of the incident, no less than by feelings of humanity, was at pains to send to Cassie the bill of sale of Eliza, whose date and name all corresponded with her own knowledge of facts, and felt no doubt upon her mind as to the identity of her child. It remained now only for her to trace out the path of the fugitives. Madame de Thau and she, thus drawn together by the singular coincidence of their fortunes, proceeded immediately to Canada, and began a tour of inquiry among the stations where the numerous fugitives from slavery are located. At Amherstburg they found the missionary with whom George and Eliza had taken shelter on their first arrival in Canada, and through him were enabled to trace the family to Montreal. George and Eliza had now been five years free. George had found constant occupation in the shop of a worthy machinist, where he had been earning a competent support for his family, which, in the meantime, had been increased by the addition of another daughter. Little Harry, a fine bright boy, had been put to a good school, and was making rapid proficiency in knowledge. The worthy pastor of the station, in Amherstburg, where George had first landed, was so much interested in the statements of Madame de Thau and Cassie, that he yielded to the solicitations of the former, to accompany them to Montreal in their search, she bearing all the expense of the expedition. The scene now changes to a small, neat tenement in the outskirts of Montreal, the time evening. A cheerful fire blazes on the hearth, a tea-table, covered with a snowy cloth, stands prepared for the evening meal. In one corner of the room was a table covered with a green cloth, where was an open writing-desk, pens, paper, and over it a shelf of well-selected books. This was George's study. The same zeal for self-improvement which led him to steal the much-coveted arts of reading and writing, amid all the toil and discouragements of his early life, still led him to devote all his leisure time to self-cultivation. At this present time he is seated at the table making notes from a volume of the family library he has been reading. "'Come, George,' said Eliza. "'You've been gone all day. Do put down that book, and let's talk, while I'm getting tea. Do!' And little Eliza seconds the effort by toddling up to her father, and trying to pull the book out of his hand, and instill herself on his knee as a substitute. "'Oh, you little witch!' said George, yielding, as in such circumstances man always must. 
"'That's right,' said Eliza, as she begins to cut a loaf of bread. A little older she looks, her form a little fuller, her air more matronly than of yore, but evidently contented and happy as woman need be. "'Harry, my boy, how did you come on in that sum to-day?' says George, as he laid his hand on his son's head. Harry has lost his long curls, but he can never lose those eyes and eyelashes, and that fine, bold brow that flushes with triumph as he answers, "'I did it! Every bit of it, myself, father, and nobody helped me!' "'That's right,' says his father. "'Depend on yourself, my son. You have a better chance than ever your poor father had.' At this moment there is a rap at the door, and Eliza goes and opens it. The delighted, "'Why, this you!' calls up her husband and the good pastor of Amherstburg is welcomed. There are two more women with him, and Eliza asks them to sit down. Now, if the truth must be told, the honest pastor had arranged a little program according to which this affair was to develop itself, and, on the way up, all had very cautiously and prudently exhorted each other not to let things out except according to previous arrangement. What was the good man's consternation, therefore, just as he had motioned to the ladies to be seated, and was taking out his pocket-handkerchief to wipe his mouth, so as to proceed to his introductory speech in good order, when Madame de Tau upset the whole plan by throwing her arms around George's neck, and letting all out at once by saying, "'Oh, George, don't you know me? I'm your sister Emily!' Cassie had seated herself more composedly, and would have carried on her part very well had not little Eliza suddenly appeared before her in exact shape and form every outline and curl, just as her daughter was when she saw her last. The little thing peered up in her face, and Cassie caught her up in her arms, pressed her to her bosom, saying, what, at the moment she really believed, "'Darling, I'm your mother!' In fact, it was a troublesome matter to do up exactly in proper order, but the good pastor at last succeeded in getting everybody quiet and delivering the speech with which he had intended to open the exercises, and in which at last he succeeded so well that his whole audience were sobbing about him in a manner that ought to satisfy any orator, ancient or modern. They knelt together, and the good man prayed, for there are some feelings so agitated and tumultuous that they can find rest only by being poured into the bosom of almighty love and then, rising up, the new-found family embraced each other with a holy trust in him, who from such peril and dangers, and by such unknown ways, had brought them together. The notebook of a missionary among the Canadian fugitives contains truth stranger than fiction. How can it be otherwise, when a system prevails which whirls families and scatters their members as the wind whirls and scatters the leaves of autumn? These shores of refuge, like the eternal shore, often unite again in glad communion, hearts that for long years have mourned each other as lost, and affecting beyond expression is the earnestness with which every new arrival among them is met, if, perchance, it may bring tidings of mother, sister, child, or wife still lost to view in the shadows of slavery. Deeds of heroism are wrought here more than those of romance, when, defying torture and braving death itself, the fugitive voluntarily threads his way back to the terrors and perils of that dark land, that he may bring out his sister, or mother, or wife. One young man, of whom a missionary has told us, 
twice recaptured, and suffering shameful stripes for his heroism, had escaped again, and, in a letter which we heard read, tells his friends that he is going back a third time, that he may at last bring away his sister. My good sir, is this man a hero or a criminal? Would not you do as much for your sister, and can you blame him? But to return to our friends, whom we left wiping their eyes and recovering themselves from too great and sudden a joy, they are now seated around the social board, and are getting decidedly companionable. Only that Cassie, who keeps little Eliza on her lap, occasionally squeezes the little thing in a manner that rather astonishes her, and obstinately refuses to have her mouth stuffed with cake to the extent the little one desires, alleging, what the child rather ponders at, that she has got something better than cake, and doesn't want it. And, indeed, in two or three days, such a change has passed over Cassie, that our readers would scarcely know her. The despairing, haggard expression of her face had given way to one of gentle trust. She seemed to sink at once into the bosom of the family, and take the little ones into her heart, as something for which it long had waited. Indeed, her love seemed to flow more naturally to the little Eliza than to her own daughter, for she was the exact image and body of the child whom she had lost. The little one was a flowery bond between mother and daughter, through whom grew up acquaintanceship and affection. Eliza's steady, consistent piety, regulated by the constant reading of the sacred word, made her a proper guide for the shattered and wearied mind of her mother. Cassie yielded at once, and with her whole soul, to every good influence, and became a devout and tender Christian. After a day or two, Madame de Sceaux told her brother more particularly of her affairs. The death of her husband had left her an ample fortune, which she generously offered to share with the family. When she asked George what way she could best apply it for him, he answered, "'Give me an education, Emily. That has always been my heart's desire. Then I can do all the rest.' On mature deliberation it was decided that the whole family should go, for some years, to France whither they sailed, carrying Emmeline with them. The good looks of the latter won the affection of the first mate of the vessel, and shortly after entering the port she became his wife. George remained four years at a French university, and, applying himself with an unintermitted zeal, obtained a very thorough education. Political troubles in France at last led the family again to seek an asylum in this country. George's feelings and views, as an educated man, may be best expressed in a letter to one of his friends. I feel somewhat at a loss as to my future course. True, as you have said to me, I might mingle in the circles of the whites in this country, my shade of color is so slight, and that of my wife and family scarce perceptible. Well, perhaps on sufferance I might. But, to tell you the truth, I have no wish to. My sympathies are not for my father's race, but for my mother's. To him I was no more than a fine dog or horse. To my poor heart-broken mother I was a child, and though I never saw her, after the cruel sale that separated us, till she died, yet I know she always loved me dearly. I know it by my own heart. When I think of all she suffered, of my own early sufferings, of the distresses and struggles of my heroic wife, of my sister, sold in the New Orleans slave-market, though I hope to have no unchristian sentiments, yet I may be excused for saying I have no wish to pass for an American, or to identify myself with them. 
It is with the oppressed, enslaved African race that I cast in my lot, and, if I wished anything, I would wish myself two shades darker rather than one lighter. The desire and yearning of my soul is for an African nationality. I want a people that shall have a tangible, separate existence of its own. And where am I to look for it? Not in Haiti, for in Haiti they had nothing to start with. A stream cannot rise above its fountain. The race that formed the character of the Haitians was a worn-out, effeminate one, and, of course, the subject-race will be centuries in rising to anything. Where, then, shall I look? On the shores of Africa I see a republic, a republic formed of picked men, who, by energy and self-educating force, have, in many cases, individually, raised themselves above a condition of slavery. Having gone through a preparatory stage of feebleness, this republic has, at last, become an acknowledged nation on the face of the earth, acknowledged by both France and England. There it is my wish to go, and find myself a people. I am aware now that I shall have you all against me, but before you strike, hear me. During my stay in France I have followed up, with intense interest, the history of my people in America. I have noted the struggle between abolitionist and colonizationist, and have received some impressions, as a distant spectator, which could never have occurred to me as a participator. I grant that this Liberia may have subserved all sorts of purposes by being played off in the hands of our oppressors against us. Doubtless the scheme may have been used, in unjustifiable ways, as a means of retarding our emancipation. But the question to me is, is there not a God above all man's schemes? May He not have overruled their designs and founded for us a nation by them? In these days a nation is born in a day. A nation starts, now, with all the great problems of republican life and civilization wrought out to its hand. It has not to discover, but only to apply. Let us, then, all take hold together, with all our might, and see what we can do with this new enterprise, and the whole splendid continent of Africa opens before us and our children. Our nation shall roll the tide of civilization and Christianity along its shores, and plant their mighty republics, that, growing with the rapidity of tropical vegetation, shall be for all coming ages. Do you say that I am deserting my enslaved brethren? I think not. If I forget them one hour, one moment of my life, so may God forget me. But what can I do for them here? Can I break their chains? No, not as an individual. But let me go and form part of a nation which shall have a voice in the councils of nation, and then we can speak. A nation has a right to argue, remonstrate, implore, and present the cause of its race, which an individual has not. If Europe ever becomes a grand council of free nations, as I trust in God it will, if there serfdom and all unjust and oppressive social inequalities are done away, and if they, as France and England have done, acknowledge our position, then in the great Congress of Nations we will make our appeal, and present the cause of our enslaved and suffering race. And it cannot be that free, enlightened America will not then desire to wipe from her escutcheon that bar sinister which disgraces her among nations, and is as truly a curse to her as to the enslaved. But, you will tell me, our race have equal rights to mingle in the American Republic as the Irishman, the German, the Swede. Granted they have, 
We ought to be free to meet and mingle, to rise by our individual worth, without any consideration of caste or color, and they who deny us this right are false to their own professed principles of human equality. We ought, in particular, to be allowed here. We have more than the rights of common men. We have the claim of an injured race for reparation. But then I do not want it. I want a country, a nation of my own. I think that the African race has peculiarities yet to be unfolded in the light of civilization and Christianity, which, if not the same with those of the Anglo-Saxon, may prove to be, morally, of even a higher type. To the Anglo-Saxon race has been entrusted the destinies of the world during its pioneer period of struggle and conflict. To that mission its stern, inflexible, energetic elements were well adapted. But as a Christian I look for another era to arise. On its borders I trust we stand, and the throes that now convulse the nations are, to my hope, but the birth-pangs of an hour of universal peace and brotherhood. I trust that the development of Africa is to be essentially a Christian one. If not a dominant and commanding race, they are, at least, an affectionate, magnanimous, and forgiving one. Having been called in the furnace of injustice and oppression, they have need to bind closer to their hearts that sublime doctrine of love and forgiveness through which alone they are to conquer, which it is to be their mission to spread over the continent of Africa. In myself, I confess, I am feeble for this. Full half the blood in my veins is the hot and hasty Saxon. But I have an eloquent preacher of the gospel ever by my side, in the person of my beautiful wife. When I wander, her gentler spirit ever restores me, and keeps before my eyes the Christian calling and mission of our race. As a Christian patriot, as a teacher of Christianity, I go to my country, my chosen, my glorious Africa. And to her, in my heart, I sometimes apply those splendid words of prophecy, Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You will call me an enthusiast. You will tell me that I have not well considered what I am undertaking. But I have considered and counted the cost. I go to Liberia, not as an elysium of romance, but as to a field of work. I expect to work with both hands, to work hard, to work against all sorts of difficulties and discouragements, and to work till I die. This is what I go for, and in this I am quite sure I shall not be disappointed. Whatever you may think of my determination, do not divorce me from your confidence, and think that in Whatever I do, I act with a heart fully given to my people. George Harris George, with his wife, children, sister, and mother, embarked for Africa some few weeks after. If we are not mistaken, the world will yet hear from him there. Of our other characters we have nothing very particular to write except a word relating to Miss Ophelia and Topsy, and a farewell chapter which we shall dedicate to George Shelby. Miss Ophelia took Topsy home to Vermont with her, much to the surprise of the grave, deliberative body whom a New Englander recognizes under the term, Our Folks. Our Folks at first thought it an odd and unnecessary addition to their well-trained domestic establishment. 
but so thoroughly efficient was Miss Ophelia in her conscientious endeavor to do her duty by her élève, that the child rapidly grew in grace and in favor with the family and neighborhood. At the age of womanhood she was, by her own request, baptized, and became a member of the Christian church in the place, and showed so much intelligence, activity, and zeal, and desire to do good in the world, that she was at last recommended and approved as a missionary to one of the stations in Africa, and we have heard that the same activity and ingenuity which, when a child, made her so multiform and restless in her developments, is now employed, in a safer and wholesomer manner, in teaching the children of her own country. P.S. It will be a satisfaction to some mother, also, to state that some inquiries, which were set on foot by Madame de Thau, have resulted recently in the discovery of Cassie's son. Being a young man of energy, he had escaped some years before his mother, and been received and educated by friends of the oppressed in the North. He will soon follow his family to Africa. End of chapter 43 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 44 The Liberator. George Shelby had written to his mother merely a line stating the day that she might expect him home. Of the death scene of his old friend, he had not the heart to write. He had tried several times, and only succeeded in half choking himself, and invariably finished by tearing up the paper, wiping his eyes, and rushing somewhere to get quiet. There was a pleased bustle all through the Shelby mansion that day, in expectation of the rival of young Master George. Mrs. Shelby was seated in her comfortable parlor, where a cheerful hickory fire was dispelling the chill of the late autumn evening. A supper-table, glittering with plate and cut glass, was set out, on whose arrangements our former friend, old Chloe, was presiding. Arrayed in a new calico dress, with clean white apron and high, well-starched turban, her black polished face glowing with satisfaction, she lingered, with needless punctiliousness, around the arrangements of the table, merely as an excuse for talking a little to her mistress. "'Laws, now! Won't it look natural to him?' she said. There, I set his plate just where he likes it round by the fire. Massa George allers wants the warm seat. Oh, go away. Why didn't Sally get out the best teapot? The little new one Massa George got for Mrs. Christmas. I'll have it out. And Mrs. has heard from Massa George? She said, inquiringly. Yes, Chloe, but only a line just to say he would be home tonight, if he could. That's all. Didn't say nothing about my old man, s'pose? said Chloe, still fidgeting with the teacups. No, he didn't. He did not speak of anything, Chloe. He said he would tell all when he got home. Just like Master George. He's allers so fierce for telling everything hisself. I allers minded that are in Master George. Don't see for my part how white people generally can bear to have to write things much as they do, writing such slow, uneasy kind of work. Mrs. Shelby smiled. I'm thinking my old man won't know the boys and the baby. Lor, she's the biggest gal now. Look, she is, too, and pert, Polly is. She's out to the house now, watching the hoe-cake. I's got just the very pattern my old man liked so much a-bakin'. 
just such as I gin him the morning he was took off. Lord bless us, how I felt that our morning! Mrs. Shelby sighed and felt a heavy weight on her heart at this allusion. She had felt uneasy ever since she received her son's letter, lest something should prove to be hidden behind the veil of silence which he had drawn. "'Missus has got them bills?' said Chloe anxiously. "'Yes, Chloe. "'Cause I wants to show my old man them very bills the perfectioner gave me. "'And,' says he, "'Chloe, I wish you'd stay longer. "'Thank you, Massa,' I says I. "'I would, only my old man's coming home, and Missus, she can't do without me no longer. "'There's just what I telled him. "'Very nice man, that Massa Jones was.' Chloe had pertinaciously insisted that the very bills in which her wages had been paid should be preserved to show her husband in memorial of her capability, and Mrs. Shelby had readily consented to humor her in the request. "'He won't know Polly. My old man won't. Laws, it's been five years since they tuck him. She was baby then. Couldn't but just stand up. Remember how tickled he used to be, cause she would keep a-fallin' over when she sought out to walk? Laws o' me!' The rattling of wheels now was heard. "'Massa George!' said Aunt Chloe, starting to the window. Mrs. Shelby ran to the entry-door, and was folded in the arms of her son. Aunt Chloe stood anxiously straining her eyes out into the darkness. "'Oh, poor Aunt Chloe!' said George, stopping compassionately, and taking her hard black hand between both his. "'I'd have given all my fortune to have brought him with me, but he's gone to a better country.' There was a passionate exclamation from Mrs. Shelby, but Aunt Chloe said nothing. The party entered the supper-room. The money of which Chloe was so proud was still lying on the table. "'Dar,' said she, gathering it up and holding it with a trembling hand to her mistress, "'don't never want to see nor hear on't again, just as I knew it would be, sold and murdered on them our old plantations." Chloe turned, and was walking proudly out of the room. Mrs. Shelby followed her softly, and took one of her hands, drew her down into a chair, and sat down by her. "'My poor, good Chloe,' said she. Chloe leaned her head on her mistress's shoulder, and sobbed out, "'Oh, miss, excuse me, my heart's broke, that's all.' "'I know it is,' said Mrs. Shelby, as her tears fell fast, "'and I cannot heal it, but Jesus can. He healeth the broken-hearted, and bindeth up their wounds." There was a silence for some time, and all wept together. At last George, sitting down beside the mourner, took her hand, and with simple pathos repeated the triumphant scene of her husband's death, and his last messages of love. About a month after this, one morning, all the servants of the Shelby estate were convened together in the great hall that ran through the house, to hear a few words from their young master. To the surprise of all, he appeared among them with a bundle of papers in his hand, containing a certificate of freedom to every one on the place, which he read successively, and presented, amid the sobs and tears and shouts of all present. Many, however, pressed around him, earnestly begging him not to send them away, and with anxious faces tendering back their free papers. "'We don't want to be no freer than we are. We's always had all we wanted. We don't want to leave the old place, and master and missus, and rest.' "'My good friends,' said George, as soon as he could get a silence, "'there'll be no need for you to leave me. 
the place wants as many hands to work it as it did before. We need the same about the house that we did before. But you are now free men and free women. I shall pay you wages for your work, such as we shall agree on. The advantage is that in case of my getting in debt or dying, things that might happen, you cannot now be taken up and sold. I expect to carry on the estate, and to teach you what, perhaps, it will take you some time to learn, how to use the rights I give you as free men and women. I expect you to be good, and willing to learn, and I trust in God that I shall be faithful, and willing to teach. And now, my friends, look up, and thank God for the blessing of freedom." An aged patriarchal negro, who had grown gray and blind on the estate, now rose, and lifting his trembling hand, said, "'Let us give thanks unto the Lord!' As all kneeled by one consent, a more touching and hearty Te Deum never ascended to heaven, though born on the peal of organ, bell, and cannon, than came from that honest old heart. On rising, another struck up a Methodist hymn, of which the burden was, the year of jubilee is come. Return, ye ransomed sinners, home. One thing more, said George, as he stopped the congratulations of the throng. You all remember our good old Uncle Tom? George here gave a short narration of the scene of his death, and of his loving farewell to all on the place, and added, It was on his grave, my friends, that I resolved before God that I would never own another slave while it was possible to free him, that nobody, through me, should ever run the risk of being parted from home and friends, and dying on a lonely plantation, as he died. So when you rejoice in your freedom, think that you owe it to that good old soul, and pay it back in kindness to his wife and children. Think of your freedom every time you see Uncle Tom's cabin, and let it be a memorial to put you all in mind to follow in his steps and be honest, and faithful, and Christian, as he was. End of chapter 44 Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe Chapter 45 Concluding Remarks The writer has often been inquired of, by correspondents from different parts of the country, whether this narrative is a true one, and to these inquiries she will give one general answer. The separate incidents that compose the narrative are, to a very great extent, authentic, occurring, many of them, either under her own observation or that of her personal friends. She or her friends have observed characters, the counterpart of almost all that are here introduced, and many of the sayings are word for word as heard herself or reported to her. The personal appearance of Eliza, the character ascribed to her, are sketches drawn from life. 
the incorruptible fidelity, piety, and honesty of Uncle Tom had more than one development, to her personal knowledge. Some of the most deeply tragic and romantic, some of the most terrible incidents, have also their parallels in reality. The incident of the mother's crossing the Ohio River on the ice is a well-known fact. The story of old Prue in the second volume was an incident that fell under the personal observation of a brother of the writer, then collecting clerk to a large mercantile house in New Orleans. From the same source was derived the character of the planter Legree. Of him her brother thus wrote, speaking of visiting his plantation on a collecting tour, quote, He actually made me feel of his fist, which was like a blacksmith's hammer or a nodule of iron, telling me that it was calloused with knocking down niggers. When I left the plantation I drew a long breath, and felt as if I had escaped from an ogre's den." Unquote. That the tragical fate of Tom also has too many times had its parallel, there are living witnesses all over our land to testify. Let it be remembered that in all southern states it is a principle of jurisprudence that no person of colored lineage can testify in a suit against a white and it will be easy to see that such a case may occur wherever there is a man whose passions outweigh his interests, and a slave who has manhood or principle enough to resist his will. There is, actually, nothing to protect the slave's life but the character of the master. Facts too shocking to be contemplated occasionally force their way to the public ear, and the comment that one often hears made on them is more shocking than the thing itself. It is said, quote, very likely such cases may now and then occur, but they are no sample of general practice." Unquote. If the laws of New England were so arranged that a master could now and then torture an apprentice to death, would it be received with equal composure? Would it be said, quote, "...these cases are rare and no samples of general practice?" Unquote. This injustice is an inherent one in the slave system. It cannot exist without it. The public and shameless sale of beautiful mulatto and quadroon girls has acquired a notoriety from the incidents following the capture of the pearl. We extract the following from the speech of Hon. Horace Mann, one of the legal counsel for the defendants in that case. He says, quote, In that company of seventy-six persons who attempted in 1848 to escape from the District of Columbia in the schooner Pearl, and whose officers I assisted in defending, there were several young and healthy girls who had those peculiar attractions of form and feature which connoisseurs prize so highly. Elizabeth Russell was one of them. She immediately fell into the slave-trader's fangs, and was doomed for the New Orleans market. The hearts of those that saw her were touched with pity for her fate. They offered eighteen hundred dollars to redeem her, and some there were who offered to give that would not have much left after the gift but the fiend of a slave-trader was inexorable. She was dispatched to New Orleans, but when about halfway there God had mercy on her, and smote her with death. There were two girls named Edmondson in the same company. When about to be sent to the same market, an older sister went to the shambles, to plead with the wretch who owned them, for the love of God to spare his victims. He bantered her, telling what fine dresses and fine furniture they would have, Yes, she said, that may do very well in this life, but what will become of them in the next? They too were sent to New Orleans, but were afterwards redeemed at an enormous ransom, and brought back. End quote. 
Is it not plain from this that the histories of Emmeline and Cassie may have many counterparts? Justice, too, obliges the author to state that the fairness of mind and generosity attributed to St. Clair are not without a parallel, as the following anecdote will show. A few years since, a young southern gentleman was in Cincinnati with a favorite servant, who had been his personal attendant from a boy. The young man took advantage of this opportunity to secure his own freedom, and fled to the protection of a Quaker, who was quite noted in affairs of this kind. The owner was exceedingly indignant. He had always treated the slave with such indulgence, and his confidence in his affection was such that he believed he must have been practiced upon to induce him to revolt from him. He visited the Quaker in high anger, but being possessed of uncommon candor and fairness, was soon quieted by his arguments and representations. It was a side of the subject which he never had heard, never had thought on, and he immediately told the Quaker that, if his slave would, to his own face, say that it was his desire to be free, he would liberate him. An interview was forthwith procured, and Nathan was asked by his young master whether he had ever had any reason to complain of his treatment in any respect. "'No, Massa,' said Nathan. "'You've always been good to me. Well, then, why do you want to leave me?' "'Massa may die. Then who get me? I'd rather be a free man.' After some deliberation the young master replied, "'Nathan, in your place I think I should feel very much so myself. You are free.' He immediately made him out free papers, deposited a sum of money in the hands of the Quaker, to be judiciously used in assisting him to start in life, and left a very sensible and kind letter of advice to the young man. That letter was for some time in the writer's hands. The author hopes she has done justice to that nobility, generosity, and humanity which in many cases characterize individuals at the South. Such instances save us from utter despair of our kind. But she asks any person who knows the world, are such characters common anywhere? For many years of her life the author avoided all reading upon or allusion to the subject of slavery, considering it as too painful to be inquired into and one which advancing light and civilization would certainly live down. But since the Legislative Act of 1850, when she heard with perfect surprise and consternation, Christian and humane people actually recommending the remanding escaped fugitives into slavery as a duty binding on good citizens, when she heard on all hands, from kind, compassionate, and estimable people, in the free states of the North, deliberations and discussions as to what Christian duty could be on this head, she could only think, these men and Christians cannot know what slavery is. If they did, such a question could never be open for discussion. And from this arose a desire to exhibit it in a living dramatic reality. She has endeavored to show it fairly, in its best and its worst phases. In its best aspect she has perhaps been successful. But, oh, who shall say what yet remains untold in that valley and shadow of death that lies the other side? To you, generous, noble-minded men and women of the South, you whose virtue and magnanimity and purity of character are the greater for the severer trial it has encountered, to you is her appeal. Have you not, in your own secret souls, in your own private conversings, felt that there are woes and evils in this accursed system far beyond what are here shadowed, or can be shadowed? Can it be otherwise? 
Is man ever a creature to be trusted with wholly irresponsible power? And does not the slave system, by denying the slave all legal right of testimony, make every individual owner an irresponsible despot? Can anybody fall to make the inference what the practical result will be? If there is, as we admit, a public sentiment among us, men of honor, justice, and humanity, is there not also another kind of public sentiment among the ruffian, the brutal, and the debased? And cannot the ruffian, the brutal, the debased, by slave law, own just as many slaves as the best and the purest? Are the honorable, the just, the high-minded and compassionate, the majority anywhere in this world? The slave-trade is now, by American law, considered as piracy. But a slave-trade, as systematic as ever was carried on on the coast of Africa, is an inevitable attendant and result of American slavery, and its heartbreak and its horrors, can they be told? The writer has given only a faint shadow, a dim picture of the anguish and despair that are, at this very moment, riving thousands of hearts, shattering thousands of families, and driving a helpless and sensitive race to frenzy and despair. There are those living who know the mothers whom this accursed traffic has driven to the murder of their children, and themselves seeking in death a shelter from woes more dreaded than death. Nothing of tragedy can be written, can be spoken, can be conceived, that equals the frightful reality of scenes daily and hourly acting on our shores beneath the shadow of American law and the shadow of the cross of Christ. And now, men and women of America, is this a thing to be trifled with, apologized for, and passed over in silence? Farmers of Massachusetts, of New Hampshire, of Vermont, of Connecticut, who read this book by the blaze of your winter evening fire, strong-hearted, generous sailors and ship-owners of Maine, is this a thing for you to countenance and encourage? brave and generous men of New York, farmers of rich and joyous Ohio, and ye of the wide prairie states, answer, is this a thing for you to protect and countenance? And you, mothers of America, you who have learned by the cradles of your own children to love and feel for all mankind, by the sacred love you bear your child, by your joy in his beautiful, spotless infancy, by the motherly pity and tenderness with which you guide his growing years, by the anxieties of his education, by the prayers you breathe for his soul's eternal good, I beseech you, pity the mother who has all your affections, and not one legal right to protect, guide, or educate the child of her bosom. By the sick hour of your child, by those dying eyes which you can never forget, by those last cries that wrung your heart when you could neither help nor save, by the desolation of that empty cradle, that silent nursery, I beseech you, pity those mothers that are constantly made childless by the American slave-trade. And say, mothers of America, is this a thing to be defended, sympathized with, passed over in silence? Do you say that the people of the free state have nothing to do with it, and can do nothing? Would to God this were true, but it is not true. The people of the free states have defended, encouraged, and participated, and are more guilty for it before God than the South, in that they have not the apology of education or custom. If the mothers of the free states had all felt as they should in times past, 
the sons of the free states would not have been the holders, and proverbially the hardest masters of slaves. The sons of the free states would not have connived at the extension of slavery in our national body. The sons of the free states would not, as they do, trade the souls and bodies of men as an equivalent to money in their mercantile dealings. There are multitudes of slaves temporarily owned and sold again by merchants in northern cities, and shall the whole guilt or obloquy of slavery fall only on the South? Northern men, northern mothers, northern Christians have something more to do than denounce their brethren at the South. They have to look to the evil among themselves. But what can any individual do? Of that every individual can judge. There is one thing that every individual can do. They can see to it that they feel right. An atmosphere of sympathetic influence encircles every human being, and the man or woman who feels strongly, healthily, and justly on the great interests of humanity is a constant benefactor to the human race. See, then, to your sympathies in this matter. Are they in harmony with the sympathies of Christ? Or are they swayed and perverted by the sophistries of worldly policy? Christian men and women of the North, still further you have another power. You can pray. Do you believe in prayer? Or has it become an indistinct apostolic tradition? You pray for the heathen abroad. Pray also for the heathen at home and pray for those distressed Christians whose whole chance of religious improvement is an accident of trade and sale, from whom any adherence to the morals of Christianity is, in many cases, an impossibility, unless they have given them, from above, the courage and grace of martyrdom. But, still more, on the shores of our free states are emerging the poor, shattered, broken remnants of families men and women escaped by miraculous providences from the surges of slavery, feeble in knowledge and in many cases infirm in moral constitution, from a system which confounds and confuses every principle of Christianity and morality. They come to seek a refuge among you. They come to seek education, knowledge, Christianity. What do you owe to these poor unfortunates, O Christians? Does not every American Christian owe to the African race some effort at reparation for the wrongs that the American nation has brought upon them? Shall the doors of churches and schoolhouses be shut upon them? Shall states arise and shake them out? Shall the Church of Christ hear in silence the taunt that is thrown at them, and shrink away from the helpless hand that they stretch out, and, by her silence, encourage the cruelty that would chase them from our borders? If it must be so, it will be a mournful spectacle. If it must be so, the country will have reason to tremble, when it remembers that the fate of nations is in the hands of one who is very pitiful and of tender compassion. Do you say, We don't want them here, let them go to Africa? That the providence of God has provided a refuge in Africa is indeed a great and noticeable fact, but that is no reason why the Church of Christ should throw off that responsibility to this outcast race which her profession demands of her. To fill up Liberia with an ignorant, inexperienced, half-barbarized race, just escaped from the chains of slavery, would be only to prolong for ages the period of struggle and conflict which attends the inception of new enterprises. Let the Church of the North receive these poor sufferers in the spirit of Christ, 
receive them to the educating advantages of Christian Republican society and schools, until they have attained to somewhat of a moral and intellectual maturity, and then assist them in their passage to those shores, where they may put in practice the lessons they have learned in America. There is a body of men at the North, comparatively small, who have been doing this, and as a result this country has already seen examples of men, formerly slaves, who have rapidly acquired property, reputation, and education. Talent has been developed, which, considering the circumstances, is certainly remarkable, and for moral traits of honesty, kindness, tenderness of feeling, for heroic efforts and self-denials, endured for the ransom of brethren and friends yet in slavery, they have been remarkable to a degree that, considering the influence under which they were born, is surprising. The writer has lived for many years on the frontier line of slave states, and has had great opportunities of observation among those who formerly were slaves. They have been in her family as servants, and, in default of any other school to receive them, she has in many cases had them instructed in a family school with her own children. She has also the testimony of missionaries among the fugitives in Canada, in coincidence with her own experience and her deductions, with regard to the capabilities of the race, are encouraging in the highest degree. The first desire of the emancipated slave, generally, is for education. There is nothing that they are not willing to give or do to have their children instructed, and, so far as the writer has observed herself, or taken the testimony of teachers among them, they are remarkably intelligent and quick to learn. The results of schools founded for them by benevolent individuals in Cincinnati fully establish this. The author gives the following statement of facts, on the authority of Professor C. E. Stowe, then of Lane Seminary, Ohio, with regard to emancipated slaves, now resident in Cincinnati, given to show the capability of the race, even without any very particular assistance or encouragement. The initial letters alone are given. They are all residents of Cincinnati. B. Furniture-maker, twenty years in the city, worth ten thousand dollars, all his own earnings, a Baptist. C. Full-black, stolen from Africa, sold in New Orleans, been free fifteen years, paid for himself six hundred dollars, a farmer, owns several farms in Indiana, Presbyterian, probably worth fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, all earned by himself. K. Full-black, Dealer in real estate, worth thirty thousand dollars, about forty years old, free six years, paid eighteen hundred dollars for his family, member of the Baptist Church, received a legacy from his master which he has taken good care of and increased. G. Full black, coal dealer, about thirty years old, worth eighteen thousand dollars, paid for himself twice, being once defrauded to the amount of sixteen hundred dollars made all his money by his own efforts, much of it while a slave, hiring his time of his master, and doing business for himself, a fine gentlemanly fellow. W. Three-fourths black, barber and waiter, from Kentucky, nineteen years free, paid for self and family over three thousand dollars, deacon in the Baptist church. G. D. Three-fourths black, whitewasher, from Kentucky, nine years free, paid fifteen hundred dollars for self and family, recently died, aged sixty, worth six thousand dollars. Professor Stowe says, With all these except G I have been for some years personally acquainted, and make my statements from my own knowledge. 
The writer well remembers an aged colored woman who was employed as a washerwoman in her father's family. The daughter of this woman married a slave. She was a remarkably active and capable young woman, and by her industry and thrift, and the most persevering self-denial, raised nine hundred dollars for her husband's freedom, which she paid, as she raised it, into the hands of his master. She yet wanted a hundred dollars of the price when he died. She never recovered any of the money. These are but few facts among multitudes which might be adduced to show the self-denial, energy, patience, and honesty which the slave has exhibited in a state of freedom. And let it be remembered that these individuals have thus bravely succeeded in conquering for themselves comparative wealth and social position, in the face of every disadvantage and discouragement. The colored man, by the law of Ohio, cannot be a voter, and, till within a few years, was even denied the right of testimony in legal suits with the white. Nor are these instances confined to the state of Ohio. In all states of the Union we see men, but yesterday burst from the shackles of slavery, who, by self-educating force, which cannot be too much admired, have risen to highly respectable stations in society. Pennington among clergymen, Douglas and Ward among editors, are well-known instances. If this persecuted race, with every discouragement and disadvantage, have done thus much, how much more they might do if the Christian Church would act towards them in the spirit of her Lord! This is an age of the world when nations are trembling and convulsed. A mighty influence is abroad, surging and heaving the world, as with an earthquake. And is America safe? Every nation that carries in its bosom great and unredressed injustice has in it the elements of this last convulsion. For what is this mighty influence thus rousing in all nations and languages those groanings that cannot be uttered for man's freedom and equality? O oh, Church of Christ, read the signs of the times! Is not this power the spirit of him whose kingdom is yet to come, and whose will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? But who may abide the day of his appearing? For that day shall burn as an oven, and he shall appear as a swift witness against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger in his right, and he shall break in pieces the oppressor. Are not these dread words for a nation bearing in her bosom so mighty an injustice? Christians, every time that you pray that the kingdom of Christ may come, can you forget that prophecy associates, in dread fellowship, the day of vengeance with the year of his redeemed? A day of grace is yet held out to us. Both North and South have been guilty before God, and the Christian Church has a heavy account to answer not by combining together to protect injustice and cruelty, and making a common capital of sin is this union to be saved, but by repentance, justice, and mercy. For not sure is the eternal law by which the millstone sinks in the ocean than that stronger law by which injustice and cruelty shall bring on nations the wrath of Almighty God. End of chapter 45 and end of Uncle Tom's Cabin.